Sports World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Namaste, konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, shalom, what's happening, what's going on, konnichiwa, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos, mi llamo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so doggone glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, let me say that I hope everybody's doing great, I hope you're doing fantastic. I hope that you're doing everything that you need to do to make your world, to make your spot, to make your place, to make your block, to make your community, to make your neighborhood the best it can be. Unity, harmony, understanding, love, listening, learning, all of those things. Put that into the stew and what a beautiful smelling stew it will be when everything is all said and done. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can try to do to make this world a much better place than it was two minutes ago. Let's see what we can do to move this society forward in a positive, loving, understanding, unified direction. Shall we? Let's see what we can do that. Let's see if we can do that. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm recording this on a Thursday night, late Thursday night, right before the start of the NCAA tournament. So this podcast is mainly going to be March Madness-centric in terms of talking about what's going on. I want to get to this these allegations concerning Deshaun Watson. I want to get to the signing, the first step, and what could be the biggest sporting event for the year 2021. That'll be at the end of the program. That segment, by the way, is going to be dedicated to my uh, to my man Armando Vasquez. Um, the education, Mr. Wallace is going to put on his educational hat. I'm going to jump into the phone booth, put on my educational cape, because Mr. Vasquez might need a little education with uh, what I'm going to be talking about at the end of the podcast in terms of the biggest sporting event that's going to be happening. And I'm not talking about the Olympics. The World Cup isn't happening for another year. There's something going on, an event that's going to be trying to take place not once but twice that should signify the biggest sporting event of the year. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you about that while educating not only you but also Mr. Vasquez at the end of the podcast. So no NBA um, talk today. I know that the NBA trade, trade deadline is coming up um, next week. I know that the Milwaukee Bucks made a move for P.J. Tucker. I know there's been some interesting games out there that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Philadelphia and the Milwaukee game. Giannis sitting on the court after hitting a clutch shot to uh, seal the victory in overtime for the Milwaukee Bucks. Wanted to get into that a little bit. Wanted to get into the Utah Jazz. Stumbling just a little bit. Good victory on the road in their East Coast swing against the Boston Celtics, but then to go to Washington and have uh, Westbrook and Bradley Beal put up 40 points or put up mid-40s, low-30s against them in the loss, unacceptable if you're the Utah Jazz. Um, wanted to get into the P.J. Tucker trade. 
him going from Houston to Milwaukee? Where does that put Milwaukee? Wanted to even spoke speak a little bit about Myers Leonard and his anti-Semitic um, his anti-Semitic uh, comment that he made. Just own up to it, man. Oh, I didn't know that was a I didn't know that was a, a slur. Oh, okay, good one. So get into that just a little bit. I wanted to get into all these things, but you know Georgetown making the uh, tournament and just the focal point right now of what sports is about being the NCAA tournament. I'm going to put NFL free agency on the back burner. Dying to talk about my Washington football team getting Ryan Fitzpatrick. So what are they now? The Washington Fitzpatrick skins. Wanted to get into that. Wanted to get into some moves. Not getting into Russell Wilson. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. If you want to hear up to dates, thoughts and opinions about Russell Wilson, every segment, every show, every day, you know, go ahead and tune into the Mike Greenberg show. Go in and watch uh, Shannon the Skip. You can do all those type of things, but uh, I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't speculate. I can't go day by day podcast after podcast speculating about Russell Wilson. If something happens, then we'll go ahead and discuss it. But I don't know if this man is serious. I don't know if he's just bullshitting. I don't know if he's just letting off steam. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So between that, Deshaun Watson still with the Houston, Texas. No movement there. The allegations of sexual assault concerning Deshaun. I'll be talking about that later on in the podcast also. But mainly, again, football, back burner. Basketball, NBA, back burner. Talk about those things heavily in my next podcast, along with uh, either my ranting about Georgetown making it to the second round or the Sweet 16, or my conciliatory special dedication to Georgetown about a great season, losing to Colorado is no shame. I'll tell you right now, as much as I love Patrick Ewing, as much as I love America's coach Patrick Ewing, as much as I love my Georgetown Hoyas, I think I uh, pretty much um, solidified that if you listen to me, if you listen to my podcast, especially the last podcast that, uh, you know, I am a devotee. I am a cult member follower of the Georgetown Hoyas basketball program within reason. But even I have to be realistic to know that, you know what, the chances against Colorado, not too good, not very good. I still remember this is a team that had to win the Big East tournament to get to the NCAA tournament. So, um, not, uh, I mean, I don't know, expectations, I don't know. I didn't think they'd get past Villanova, so... I don't know. I don't know. Everything right now is gravy with Georgetown. So, you know what? If they beat Colorado, hey, man, I'll be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. If they make it to the Sweet 16, I'll be dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. But uh, I'm realistic in the fact that there's a pretty good chance, decent chance, strong chance that they'll lose to Colorado. But the Georgetown, bas <clears throat> excuse me, the Georgetown basketball program is back, moving in the right direction. And now I hear some rumblings on Twitter, and take that with a grain of salt, it's Twitter that Georgetown, Patrick Baldwin Jr. Oh, 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 don't tease me. Please don't tease me. What? Just, just don't tease me. We're not getting Chet Holgram, God damn it. He's either going to go to the G League or go to Gonzaga. Chet Holgram is the number one player in the country. String bean of a seven-footer who can dribble, who can shoot and do some things. He would be a super nice addition. We've been on his skinny ass for a long time now, but... All likelihood, the kid from Minnesota, who's the number one player by far in the, in the 2021 high school class, he's going to either, once again, go to the G League or go to Gonzaga. So I'm uh, I'm not going to get my hopes up. Uh, I'm not going to get my hopes up too high about that one. I'm not going to react like I did when Nerlens Nor Noel 
went on ESPN and it came down to Kentucky and Georgetown and uh, Georgetown, Kentucky and Syracuse. And he decided he was going to uh, Kentucky. Man, I was not happy. I was not happy that day. So I'm not going to get all bent out of shape when Holmgren decided to go to either the G League or Gonzaga. And I'm not really, I don't know, man. When it comes to Patrick Baldwin, yeah, I'm keeping my emotions in check. It's, it's Twitter. Take it with the grain of salt. He's either going to Milwaukee where his father's a coach or he's going to Duke. You know, so we still got a killer class coming in. By the way, Patrick Baldwin is a top five guy in the 2021, a potential one and done six nine ball handler, a perimeter player, someone that we need with um, Jamarco Pickett graduating, Trudier Bile probably not coming back. So we're going to need somebody to fit in that starting five next year, along with Dante Harris, Aminu Muhammad, Kudus Wahab, and um, wow, who else is going to be in that squad? We got Kudus, we got Dante, we're going to have Aminu, and we're going to have, uh, I don't know, what, Jabari Sibley or something like that? So. Patrick Baldwin would be a definite play, uh, plug and play guy who would uh, be awesome for us. So, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. We will see. So, those are the things later on down the road for another podcast. But uh, today, again, mainly going to be talking about uh, the NCAA tournament. Why? Why is everybody not, you know, hooting and hollering about Gonzaga? You guys know that they're undefeated, right? I mean, you know that they're probably going to run the table and finish the season 32-0, and right? I mean, you, you understand that this is probably, if they run the table, this is probably going to be the most dominant squad. I can't think of another dominant squad yet. Yeah, you could bring up the Kentucky team that went 38-1, and but they lost to uh, Wisconsin in the Final Four. You could bring up the Louisville, I'm sorry, you could bring up the UNLV team that lost to Duke after they went through the entire regular season undefeated, I think. You could talk about Georgetown, who lost to uh, Villanova. They had to play the perfect game and get hooked up on cocaine to uh, win the title. Dwayne McLean and the boys you know, got hooked up on cocaine and won the fi- um, final in 85 against Georgetown. So, you know, there's been some dominant teams. There's been some great teams. North Carolina, the year 2009, they won the uh, NCAA tournament. They were a great team. I think Gonzaga... Them compared to the competition that they're facing this season, I think they're just as dominant or even more dominant than any of, any of those uh, teams that I just mentioned. So why is it that Gonzaga is not getting the love and the respect and the attention that I think they deserve? I'll discuss that on my podcast, in my podcast today. What podcast are you talking about, Wendell? Let me explain to you. It's Wendell's World of Sports, the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking podcast, sports talk podcast that you can listen to with the most Handsome, debonairish, good-looking, cute, son-of-a-gun recording this. His name, Wendell Wallace. That's me. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Before we begin begin talking about all that, though, I want to uh, just get out of the sports realm just for a quick second. Can I do anything in a quick second, by the way? Thank you. I just want to give my thoughts and prayers to the victims of another white domestic terrorist attack. I, I, I don't want to hear the bullshit. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear some bullshit about he had a sex addiction. Don't want to hear it. Another white domestic terrorist attack. The shootings down in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the attack on the Asian community here in this country. The first shooting happened shortly after, before 5 p.m. Tuesday at Young's Asian Mas- Massage. 
near Woodstock, Georgia, about 30 miles northwest of downtown Atlanta. That shooting left four people dead and one person was also wounded. Then about an hour later, according to police chief Rodney Bryant, three people were found dead at the Gold Massage Spa. And one person was also found dead at the Aromatherapy Spa directly across the street. So according to Cherokee County Sheriff officials in a joint news conference with Atlanta police on Wednesday, they said of those who died, six were Asian and two were white. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting uh, that all six Asian victims were women. So according to South Korean Foreign Ministry, four of those killed were of Korean ethnicity. So horrible, man. Just, just horrible. I just, it's just, I don't know, man. It, you know, and in just a second, I'll get to my, all right, let's go ahead and take our places. Let's go ahead and go to our bunkers. Let's go to our sides here. Let's go to the progressive side. Let's go to the conservative side. Let's go to the liberal side. Let's go to the Republican side. Let's go to the Democrat side. And let's pull out our talking points and let's start yelling at each other and let's start deciding whose fault is it and let's not talk to each other and let's not listen to each other and not let not, not please don't let us hear anybody. Let's go ahead and try to appease our most extreme constituents instead of getting together and going to the thoughtful, going to the common sense folks, going to those who are a little bit to the left a little bit to the right, but mainly to the center point of a lot of things. And let's talk to them about what we can do to not have this happen again. Or what can we do to uh, bring healing? What can we do to bring some type of solution? No, 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 let's not do that. Let's go ahead and let's talk to the uh, far left. Let's go ahead and talk to the far right. You know, the idiots who think that, you know, everything is horrible on one side and everything is no good and horrible on the other side. Let's go out and let's get the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greens. Let's go out and get the Josh Hollies and all those other assholes. And let's see what they can do to appease them by playing the blame game. The same thing on the left. Let's go get the AOCs and let's see what we can do to start blaming those on the right. And let's not talk to each other. It's the same damn thing. Every time that there's a shooting, every time that there's a tragedy, instead of coming together, the false, the phony, the pseudo coming together, which is bullshit, we do that for about 15 seconds, and then we go to CNN, then we go to Fox, then we go to MSNBC, and we start playing the blame game. And then we start playing that this is responsible, and this guy's responsible, and this party's responsible, and this racial group is responsible. And we, we start doing that bullshit. And that's the reason why we see this shit going on uh, on an annual basis, on a semi-regular basis. So it's horrible. It's horrible. The suspect, the, the, the terrorist... Robert Aaron Long, 21, year old, 21 years old, was responsible for all three shootings. He was arrested Tuesday night about 150 miles south of Atlanta. Now, interesting how he was caught. The Cherokee County investigators found surveillance video of a suspect near the first scene and published it on social media. Long's family saw the image and helped authorities identify him. Investigators then tracked Long's phone, cell phone, and his vehicle was spotted. A chase ensued on Interstate 75 in Crisp County, and police arrested Long and confiscated a 9mm gun from his vehicle. This is what uh, the Cherokee County authorities said. And preliminary information indicates the shooting could, could relate to the suspect's claim 
of a potential sex addiction. <laughs> Long told investigators he saw the spas as a temptation that he wanted to eliminate. And he also told the investigators the killings were not racially motivated. AKA, please don't don't charge me with a hate crime. Whatever you do, don't charge me with a hate crime. I got to come up with some bullshit so I won't be charged with a hate crime. Oh, I got it. Yeah, I'm a sex addict. I'm a sex addict. I went by a couple of massage parlors and I said, my goodness gracious, something took over me. My addiction took over me. And I said, heaven's sakes alive, I can't uh, control it. So let me go in here and start shooting people. If the guy would have gone into the parlor, tied up some folks, gunpoint, tied up some folks, and then raped them, and then say, you know what, my sex addiction took over, I have a se- I'm have a sex addict and I couldn't contain myself, yeah, that might have been something that a defense attorney could maybe bring to a juror of common sense. And maybe say, look, I mean, uh, this guy just lost his mind, you know? I mean, maybe you could bring in the situation where, you know, this guy visited prostitutes. This guy um, uh, went to strip joints a lot. This guy, um, you know, talked to his wife, talked to his girlfriend, talked to somebody who said, yeah, he liked kinky sex. Yeah, he couldn't get enough. He wanted me to have sex all the time. Yeah, you know, he, you know, forced himself on me when I said no, no, no. So if Long was going to go ahead, tie these folks up, and then have sex with them at, at, at the massage parlor, I could, I could buy, I could listen to that defense. But he's going to go ahead and kill these people and say, yeah, I did it because I was a sex addict? How many sex addicts do you know? If, if, if that was the case, if that was the case, Halle Berry wouldn't be living because Eric Benet, her former husband, was a sex addict. He didn't kill her. He just went off and had sex with everybody, including her. So what in the hell are we talking about here? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, you know, I'm, I, I don't know that field. I'm not an expert. So I'm, I'm speaking here out of ignorance in terms of, you know, diagnosing sect addicts and what they do and this, that, and the other. I mean, I don't know. I mean, joking, ha, 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 isn't every man a sex addict? So, you know, what, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? To me, this motherfucker is up here talking about, again, I don't want to be charged with a hate crime, so I got to come up with something. Also, I don't want to be charged with something that's going to put me away for the rest of my life. If I sit up here and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't do it because the people were Asian. I didn't do it because, you know, I wanted to kill somebody. I did it because the sex addiction took over. I mean, yeah, I'll, prob- I'll probably be charged with murder, but second degree murder. Maybe there's a possibility that I can get out. This kid's, what, 21? Maybe by the time I'm 60, I can face parole. I mean, that's 40, 50 years, but at least there's something. At least the finish line, at least there's a finish line, so maybe I can say some bullshit like that, after all I am in Georgia and after all, I did kill a minority I, not like I killed other white people so, I mean, if you would have killed some black folks I mean, maybe they would have had a better chance to A, get off, or B, get a lesser sentence but, uh, you know killing Asians unprecedented in terms of what usually happens when white folks go ahead and kill the Asians in an example like this, I don't know how the justice system is going to work. Haven't heard of any outrageous, I'm quite sure there has been, because criminal justice system, I mean, one thing I'll say about the criminal justice system, it's blind when it comes to giving out ridiculous sentences. I mean, you know, white folks, black folks, males, females, rich, poor, everyone, everyone, every, every, there's been an example of the justice system 
you know, sticking it up the anal without any type of lubrication and not leaving a note when they're done in the morning. Every group has been um, has been screwed by the judicial system, some more than others. So, you know, we don't know what's going to be happening in this case, but, you know, guys up here talking about a sex addiction, please. Before he was stopped, did you know this? Before he was stopped, Long was headed to Florida, perhaps to carry out additional shootings. What are we talking about here? So, you know, as I mentioned before, go to your go to your corners, and you know when the bell rings, run out to the middle of the debate, the uh, debate field, and start spouting your talking points. We've got racism, we've got bigotry, we've got d- gun control, we've got mental illness. All of those things are in play for the conservatives, for the progressives, for the left, for the right, for the Dems, for the Republicans. We, we've got it all for you. So many things that you can run with as far as making your points. Me, myself, and I, I mean, you know, come on, man. The guy, this was a racially motivated attack. Sorry. I mean, you know, the guy's going to go into a massage parlor and shoot Asians. And before you start saying, yeah, he shot white people too. Yeah, but uh, two of them were white. Six of them were Asian. So I don't know, maybe if it would have been more of, you know, six were white, six were Asian, Maybe again, you might have a little bit of room to uh, throw up that defense, but this is a hate crime. This is a hate crime, and we've seen the attacks. We've seen the assaults. We've seen the violence of Asians in this country ever since the fucking piece of shit asshole that was our president, which this country was stupid enough to give power to for four years, sat there and called the coronavirus the... China flu, the uh, Chinese virus, and all this kind of bullshit. In the in the country that we live in, you know that type of bullshit. You know that type of rhetoric with the um, with the uh, with the idiots that we have living in this country. You know that shit is going to prevent. It's going to uh, promote violence toward that group of people. So yeah, in a situation like this, yeah, just like a guy who runs into an abortion clinic and he and he kills an, a, a, a doctor who's performing abortions, if he just happens to kill somebody, a secretary or somebody in the waiting room, you can't sit there and say, well, you know, he wasn't trying to kill. He had nothing to do with abortion. It had nothing to do with him, uh, uh, you know, not being down with abortion because he also killed an innocent bystander outside and someone in the nurse and this, that, and the other. No, man, that motherfucker came in there looking to kill Asians. Now, I don't know if it was because of the coronavirus. Probably. I don't know. Speculating. I don't know. But that would be my guess. So, again, the hate and violence toward Asian Americans around this country began last spring in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Asian community leaders say the bigotry was spurred by the rhetoric of the racist, incompetent, morally bankrupt, corrupt piece of shit that we had in the office who referred to the coronavirus as the China virus. And because fucking hillbillies and dumbasses who sat there and ate up every ate up all that shit, he didn't back down, he didn't change his rhetoric, he was appealing to racists, he was appealing to ignorance, he was he was um he was showboating for stupidity. So China virus and all this, the Wuhan virus and all this kind of bullshit, knowing that the simpletons that follow him, mainly the far-right idiots, the 
white nationalists, the racists, those hate groups, especially as time went on, and this was not something where the virus was no big deal. It turned out not to be a hoax. It turned out to be devastating. It turned out to be historic worthy in terms of the impact that it has and the impact it's going to have, good and bad. But focusing on the bad, the the uh, idiots that followed him, the morons that believed in him, the racists that believed that piece of shit motherfucker that thank God no longer in the White House, stirred up the pot when he was saying China virus, China virus, and insinuating that somehow, some way, Asians were responsible for your plight dealing with this coronavirus. Like, people actually thought, people actually thought this. I mean, really, guys, you guys are so fucking stupid that you're just like, oh, yeah, there's an Asian guy living in this country. Obviously, he's responsible for the coronavirus because it came from China. So we have a guy here of Chinese descent or Asian descent living here. Obviously, he must have a part. He must play a role in why my life has been so screwed up, why I lost my job, why maybe a family member of mine died, because it's his fault, because he's Asian. So somehow, even though he's Asian-American and just as American as I am, somehow, someway, he's responsible for the coronavirus coming to this country. Again, do you guys now realize, do you guys now realize when I call this country not the United States, but the selfish, ignorant, stupid, divided states of America. Because you have that fucking type of thinking from idiots like that, too many. And again, the Asian community leaders are sitting there saying, man, what the fuck? So according to statistics from the New York Police Department Hate Crime Task Force, if you take something like New York City, because we all go on the assumption when these hate crimes or when these racially attacked crimes take place, we always, our attentions always turn to Okay, where in Florida did this take place? Where in Alabama? Where in Mississippi? Where in Louisiana? Where in Southern Texas? Where in Northern Michigan? Where in Northern Ohio did this take place? No, 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 no. Those states, those red states like Oklahoma, like Kansas, like Montana, like Wyoming, like Utah, they don't have the monopoly on hating people based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity. Because, again, according to statistics from the New York Police Department's Hate Crime and Task Force, New York being one of the most diversified, if not the most diversified cities in this country, at least 10 suspected anti-Asian hate crimes have been committed in New York City between January 1st and March 14th of this year. In 2020... There were 29 reported racially motivated crimes against people of Asian descent in New York City, one of the more melting pots, pot cities in this country. 24 of those attacks were contributed to coronavirus motivation. This is according to the NYPD data. And now Asian hate crimes in this country are up 150% in the last calendar year. So this is a deal. Now, you, you, you know where these jackasses on Fox News are going, right? You know where those folks on right-wing radio are going, right? You, you know where they're going, right? I mean, as soon as he said it, as soon as this domestic terrorist uh, long gave the reason, I was like, boom, there you go. Breitbart News, uh, uh, 
Owen or whatever the fuck, the right wing, far right, Alex Jones types. They've got their out. They've got their out. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's got her out. Josh Hawley, he's got his out. Ted Cruz, he's got his out. Soon as that motherfucker said, sex addiction, it was like, boom, there you go. There you go. So now we're going to have those jackasses sit there and talk about, no, 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 this had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with race. It was sexually motivated. No, 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 no. Because again, I mean, yeah, he came into a place where Asians are working and he killed them. But again, he also killed two white people. And he said that it was sexually motivated. These idiots are so fucking, and I shouldn't say these idiots, idiots who believe this bullshit are so fucking stupid and they're so much in denial about how much racism exists in this country, not just amongst black people and brown people, but also amongst people of all colors and ethnicities in this country. These jackasses who probably live in the whitest of white counties and states in this country are so fucking dumb, are so fucking privileged, are so fucking out of touch, that it's like, yeah, we will take the word of someone who just murdered eight people, six of them of Asian descent, going to a place, a massage parlor, where there's going to be Asians there. I mean, this is in Georgia, for heaven's sake. This isn't San Francisco. This isn't Seattle. This isn't somewhere somewhere where there's Asians aplenty, where you can start open, opening fire. I mean, this man had to drive and do some research to find some Asian folks in Georgia to go ahead and commit this atrocity. So these jackasses, these idiots, who don't want to believe racism exists at all, except for BLM, and except for the far left, these idiots are so fucking stupid that they'll go ahead and they'll take the word of someone who just committed mass murder when he says, oh yeah, I did it for because um, I had a sex addiction. I mean, Dylan Roof is sitting in South Carolina right now saying, damn, why didn't I try to do some shit like that? I should have said, no, I didn't kill him because they were black. I killed him because uh, I don't like churches that are over a certain amount of size. And when I saw the church being that size, I got like out of control and I just went blank and I just started shooting people. Had nothing to do with race. I mean, shit, Dylan Roof should have said that. So Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and all those other fucking race baiting jackasses could have sit there and been like, see, told you, told you it had nothing to do with race. Told you, see, told you. He even prayed with them. See, so how could he hate people he prayed with? See, told you. This is BLM's work right here. They're trying to convince you that was racially attacked. Dylan Roof did this because they were black. No, 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 no. He did it because he didn't like the church in that neighborhood. And he didn't like the fact that there wasn't enough greenery around it. And it triggered something in him. And he just went ballistic. Had nothing to do with the color of the skin of the uh, patrons that were in there. Really, it's it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And I sit here with every podcast that I do. And I sit here and I say, unity, togetherness, learning, listening, understanding. And again, you knew far right was going to do this bullshit. Instead of saying, yeah, man, this shit was racially motivated. You know what? Maybe with the coronavirus, maybe we should cut down on the rhetoric. And people say, well, you know, you had the Ebola, you know, you had the Ebola this. And, you know, we always label... um viruses or pandemics or viruses or something like that and the origin that it came from so what's the big deal the big deal is that as a country we are not mature enough 
to handle the fact that even if it did come from China, we are not mature enough as a country, as a whole, not to commit some type of violence toward the perceived people we feel inflicted us with this situation that we're in right now. That's the reason why. So instead of our leaders saying, look, you know, it wasn't because of that. Violence isn't going to do anything to try to mitigate some of the idiots out there who are going to try to commit violence against our Asian brothers and sisters out there in this country. Now they're just going to go ahead and they're going to try to appeal to those people. Because if, um, if that, that kooky, crazy piece of garbage bitch, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, um, and um, Josh Hawley and those guys, if they came out and started making sense or tried to make sense to their constituents by saying, hey, look, you know, I mean, this had nothing. I mean, you know, this was racially motivated. This guy uh, did it because this, that, and the other. And we need to start having some unity and we need to start having some discussions and we need to be open and we need to start listening and we need to start learning what's going on and we need to stop this ridiculous notion that somehow Asians who are living in this country are somehow responsible for the coronavirus, we need to kind of, uh, you know, wake up. We kind of need to buck up. We kind of need to uh, grow up. We kind of need to do all things. If those people started talking to those constituents, those jackasses, their constituents in floor, in um, whatever county of Georgia and whatever county of Missouri that those idiots came from, that those idiots voted for them to go to Washington, if they started talking to them like that, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be in the position that they're in. If Ted Cruz started talking real talk in terms of like, you know, this is what's really going down for real, the his constituents who were fucking stupid enough to put him back to Washington, they would go with somebody else. So Holly and Green and Louis Gomer and Patrick and all these other jackasses, they wouldn't have a job. So they need to go ahead and spout racism. They need to go ahead and spout stupidity. They need to go ahead and, and race bait. Because that's what their constituents want. So that's that's the deal right there. Holly and Green and Crew, excuse me, and Cruz, they're playing those stupid motherfuckers. Absolutely playing their constituents because their constituents are too uneducated and too dumb to realize that they're being played. The same the, the same jackasses who voted for Mitch McConnell. Out there in Kentucky, you idiots who voted for Mitch McConnell to go back to the Senate, you're being played. You're being played. He does not give a fuck about you. You are being played. The dummies got played. Congratulations. So, uh, you know, I just want unity, man. I just want the majority of folks, look, no matter what, there's always going to be fringes on the left and to the right who are always just, no matter what's going to be happening, man. You know, a, a, a black man's going to go out and commit mass murder on a bunch of white folks. And, you know, there's going to be folks in the black community who's going to be like, hey, way to go. Hip, hip, hooray. Nice job. You know, I get that. I understand that. Doesn't make it any more acceptable. Doesn't make it uh, right. Doesn't, doesn't do anything. Two wrongs don't make a right in that situation. So I'm hoping, regardless of who you are, regardless of what your skin tone or your ethnicity or your gender or your political affiliations, no, no matter what it is, man, can we please come together, please, and please try to work this out with common sense, with unity, with understanding. For God fucking sake, can we please listen to the Asian community? Because we see that shit already. 
We see this shit already happening where the agents are coming out and saying, hey, man, you know, this bullshit is starting to kind of get out of control here. This is kind of like growing this hatred. It first turned into insults. It first turned into, uh, you know, from insults and turned into uh, physical attacks. And now it's turning into murder. Now it's turning into mass murder. So, you know, this shit needs to stop. We need to come together. We need to say that Asians' lives matter too. And, you know, guess what? Those idiots who don't live around too many Asians, those idiots who don't come from diverse regions of the country, who don't come from the most diverse backgrounds, they sit up there and all of a sudden now they're starting to attack Asians. Oh, what the big deal? Oh, you guys are throwing in a race card. Oh, I told you that, you know, he... He said he had a sex addiction, so it wasn't racially motivated. Why are the Asian, why is the Asian community all of a sudden now whining and complaining? You guys have a good, you guys come over here and get tax breaks and this, that, and the other. You guys don't have to speak the language. You guys, you know, you start to hear that bullshit now. Now it's going to be interesting because it's going to be very funny to see the Asians come over to my side of the street and walk into my community and say, Oh, now I know what you guys were talking about when you were getting frustrated with folks. Who didn't believe you? Now I understand. The same shit now that's happening to Asians and their community is the same thing that's been happening to the black community for, I don't know, centuries, decades. Oh, Asians are going to be like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Oh, okay. Shit. Now I know what you guys go through. Okay. Wow. How about that? Interesting. So, Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The professional athletes said something about this domestic terrorist attack, LeBron James, who still won't give us an answer on when he's going to take the vaccine for the coronavirus, but he tweeted on Wednesday, my condolences go out to the families of all the victims and the entire Asian community tonight on what hap- what transpired in Atlanta at the Aromatherapy Spa. Coward's ass, coward-ass young man, just senseless and tragic, amen. Jeremy Lin, who has been the subject of uh, a racial... Uh, no, not a, a verbal racial attack during a G League game. He um, made that public. He tweeted that this is so heartbreaking, praying for our world. We need more than prayer, Jeremy. To my Asian American family, please take time to grieve, but know your love seen and, in capital words, important. We want to keep standing up, speaking out, rallying together, and fighting for change. We cannot lose hope. I want to be there with y'all, man. I want to be there with anybody. I want to be there with anybody who's looking to make change. Whether it's dealing with Native American issues, whether it's dealing with female uh, 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 women issues, whether it's dealing with uh, gay and lesbian issues. Whatever we can do to uh, bring unity and harmony, man. I want to be there. I want to be there. Look, I'm the first one to let you know. I mean, it's been, it's been rough going in terms of me with my new attitude toward... Um, Gays and lesbians. Lesbians, not so much, but the gays, guys who are gay. I'm telling the community right now. I'm telling this community right now. I'm, I'm, I'm working and I'm trying and I'm very sincere. But man, I've been, I'm not going to say a homophobe, but I've had ignorant thoughts and views on some of the things going down with uh, gays in the community. And I'm, I'm fighting them. I'm fighting them every day. I am. Seriously, I am. But it's tough. It's hard. And I have to admit, sometimes I slip. Sometimes I go back to my ignorance stage when I see 
two guys doing whatever. I'm not going to get into that bullshit. But what I'm saying is sometimes I have to remind myself, no, 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 no. That's the old Wendell. That's the ignorant Wendell. That's the intolerant Wendell. We're not doing that anymore. You're too, you're too smart. You're too old. You're too wise. And damn sure you wouldn't want someone, you know, judging you just based on the color of your skin. So why are you judging or why are you going that route? Why are you going down that thought process when you see this gay guy doing this or these gay guys doing that? Don't go there. Fuck you. Turn it around. Let's go. Let's go. So I'm I'm learning. I'm trying my best. And I'm going to get there. Hopefully. Hopefully. But I'm one of those where it's like, come on, man. I'm, I'm there for, I want to be there for that change. I want to be there for everybody being able to get along. Being everybody to respect uh, what their likes and dislikes and their differences is. Doesn't mean I have to be your best friend. Doesn't mean I have to name my first child after you. Doesn't mean that I have to, uh, you know, agree and embrace everything you do. But tolerance, respect, acceptance, understanding, education, and moving on in life. That's, that's the deal. So with the Asians, with the Hispanics, with the Native Americans, with the Muslims, I'm, I'm, I'm down for anybody who's like, look, man, I just want peace, unity, and love. You don't bother me. I don't bother you. You treat me like I want to be treated. I'll treat you like you want to be treated. And that's fine. Again, we, we don't have to break bread. We don't have to uh, go to the same church. We don't have to uh, be forced to, uh, you know, love one another unconditionally in terms of, you know, just, just understand, appreciate, and respect. That's what I'm all about, man. That's what I'm all about. And when, again, when I see folks go into their different areas or different corners and start trying to mitigate what happened, it's just, it, 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 I don't like it. It really pisses me off. It really, as we say, as Phil Henry would say, it really tightens my jaws. So Dwayne Wade tweeted, the recent attacks against our brothers and sisters in the Asian American communities are heartbreaking. The physical assaults and recent killings are rooted in racism. Amen, brother. And needs it needs to stop. We cannot be silent. My thoughts and prayers are with the families who have lost their loved ones due to senseless hatred to our Asian community. We love you. And we are standing united with you. Enough is enough. Hashtag stop Asian hate. Other athletes showing support were Tobias Harris, Trey Young, Kyle Kuzma, who tweeted out their uh, their uh, sentiments. So good for them, man. Good for them. And I wonder what this kid long. I wonder if Ricky Schroeder is going to uh, try and bail him out again. Think they'll try that? I mean, Ricky, I mean, Mr. Silverspoons is, is pretty good at trying to go ahead and try to bail out murderers and, and, and that type of thing who commit violence against um, those who are peaceful and those who are trying to make a change for the better. So I, I wonder if the Rickster is going to go ahead and try to uh, do that. But uh, yeah, man, that's my thoughts and the feelings about what's happening down in Atlanta concerning the situation. Love, peace, harmony, man. This is another example through the ruins of bigotry and races of intolerance, man. Let's, uh, let's see what we can do to rebuild uh, something made out of love, unity, togetherness, and uh, respect and love because that will last a lot longer. That tree will grow stronger. That will be good for our soul. That will be good for our planet. That will be good for each other if we grow things based on love and respect 
and understanding more than hate, division, and ignorance. So let's see what we can do to uh, turn this tragedy into something for the human spirit that could be considered triumphant. For all of us here at Film West, this is a long-awaited privilege and a great pleasure to bring on the number one lady, Miss Aretha. Thank you. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. That's me. What's happening? What's going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour. Bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum. Peace, love, unity, happiness, togetherness, working together as one for a more united, wonderful Fabulous society that we can live in, full of understanding and unity. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. Now, let's get into some NCAA tournament action. March Madness, it begins, I guess, what time is it right now? I'm watching Beat Bobby Flay on the Food Network channel. Let me take a look here. Recording this in my humble abode on the northwest side of Las Vegas in my town home. It is, oh, how about that? It's 1.15 in the morning. And I got to wake up in five hours. And I still got about an hour, 90, 100 minute plus podcast left to go. All right. Thank goodness for virtual learning. I'll be taking attendance, telling the class what to do turning off my camera and my microphone so they won't hear. (laughs) Mr. Wallace, what are we supposed to do again? (laughs) Mr. Wallace? (laughs) Let's go. Yes. Let's go, Hoyas. Oh, Holly, Holly, I'm so glad you came over to watch the game with me. Oh, you look pretty good in that see-through dress you're wearing, skin tight. What's that? At halftime, you want to invite over your good friend Jada Fire for some fun? That's fine with me. In fact, she can be here after the first TV after the first uh, TV timeout. Fantastic. And what? What do you say, Holly? 
butt naked, all of us naked, and what do you want to do? Well, I'm down with, huh? what, huh, huh? Did someone call me on the chat room? What's going on here? Was my microphone on? So, yes, I'm glad that, hey, you know what? Sometimes, <laughs> I'm still looking for that dream. I am still looking for that kind of dream. <laughs> it's me, Hallie, Kelly Starr, and uh, I don't know who else. I don't know. I don't know. And we're just, we're just having a good time. You know, who knows? But uh, yeah, so it's going to be a um, it's going to be a rough day tomorrow. But I will still be able to uh, conduct myself, do what I need to do to make the uh, chicken, and um, go ahead and watch March Mad- March Madness, baby. Are you excited about this tournament? I forgot to ask you. What about this tournament? I know we got COVID. I know that the games were canceled during the regular season. Your team, my team, all teams. It seemed like who are in the tournament now had their season stopped, paused because of COVID. The fact that there weren't any fans in the stands in the arenas this year, which I have to admit, I'm I'm not one of these guys who really get down on the showing the stadium and the cam and crazies and the dog pound and all of this bullshit and showing these kids jumping up and down and the face paint and all that nonsense. I'm I'm not really into that shit. I, show me the game, please. I'm here for the game. I'm not here for the revelry. I'm watching from home. I'm not watching. I'm not in the arena. And since I'm no longer between the ages of 18 and 22, the things that the college kids do to entertain themselves while watching the game, I have no interest in. So I, I, I really don't give a damn. But I have to admit that the uh, season, especially college basketball, all leagues, all sporting events have suffered because of no fans. But I think more than anything, um, college football and college basketball. I, I've now gained a new respect and a new appreciation of the fan element that uh, goes into the games. It just wasn't as exciting watching the games as when, st- when uh, the uh, students were in the in the, uh, in the arena, when the arena was packed and all those things. So, yeah, I guess um, I learned. I guess I gained a new, new appreciation, at least at the college level, for basketball and football, how important fans are so did that affect your love of watching basketball this year did you watch more games less games really didn't make a difference and moving into this tournament now what are we talking about here what is your reason to watch is it just because you filled out your bracket and you want to see what's happening i don't gamble living in las vegas i will not gamble the casinos have are big enough they are doing well without my money without my contributions so I don't place any bets. I don't do any gambling. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't fill out any brackets. So for me, it's not a reason for me to watch uh, March Madness. I'm, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to speak about it. But, I mean, I'm not Jay Billis. I'm not Seth Greenberg. I'm not Seth Davis. I'm not Andy Katz. I'm not uh, Gary Parrish. I'm not uh, any of those guys in terms of knowing all of these uh, players and teams and what they do. I can't tell you anything about Liberty. I can't tell you anything about Ohio. I can't tell you anything about some of the small schools from the Patriot League and such. I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't watch any Patriot League games. I didn't watch any American uh, East games this year. Damn, I barely watched the ACC and the Big 12. I didn't didn't watch one second of Texas Tech this year. Didn't watch one second of LSU this year. Barely watched any of Arizona games this year. Now, yeah, the fact that McClung was on 
Texas Tech. Josh LeBlanc, LeBlanc transferred to LSU. And James Akinjo went to Arizona. It made it easier for me not to have any interest at all in watching those teams. But, you know, for the most part, I'm very, I'm, I'm not a guru when it comes to um, the 68 teams in the NCAA tournament. I know my teams from the Power 5 conferences, Power 6 conferences, but I haven't watched any uh, any of the games of any substance from any of the smaller schools, any of the smaller conferences. So I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you about this upset's going to happen and that upset is going to happen based on my knowledge of the team. I don't know. I could sit there and maybe tell you Creighton's fallen a little bit because of the whole situation with uh, Doug McDermott and his comments about the plantation. And they, they didn't look good at all in the Big East final uh, against Georgetown and Villanova. They've uh, had some uh, injuries to where, you know, they're scroungering just a little bit. Um, you know, um, Ohio State, Illinois, Michigan, they're losing a player. So they're a number one seed. But how strong of a, of a number one seed are they? Um Texas coming in, Shaka Smart saving his job at Texas, number three. Uh, they have a pro prospect, a high pro prospect in uh, in uh, Greg Brown or Gary Brown, a guy who likes to shoot and shoot and then uh, shoot some more. Uh, you know, so I, I know some teams from the Power Six conferences, but for me to sit here and tell you where the upset going to happen, we always see a number two beat a number 15. We always see a number five beat a number, excuse me, a number 15 beat a number two, a number 12 beat a number five, a number 14 beat a number three. We, we, we've always seen that scenario. I just don't know which team that's going to happen to because I can't take a look at a number 15 team, 15 seed, and know enough about them to say, hey, you know what? I, uh, I, have, a, I have a feeling. I've got the feeling. So for me, that's not really my reason to watch the uh, tournament. Is it for you? I'm not into upsets. I like to see chalk. I like to see the best teams make the tournament. I like to see the best teams win uh, so they can move on. Um, if, if a mid-major or a low-major school is uh, good enough, then, yeah, I don't mind them. Or, you know, hey, cool, good. They, they move on, this, that, and the other. Houston is from the AAC. They're ranked number five in the country. If they made it to the... Uh, elite eight or to the final four. That's not Cinderella. That's not a fluke. I mean, Houston's a damn good team with a really damn good coach. Kelvin Sampson. I bet you Indiana's still kicking themselves in the ass when they had to let Kelvin Sampson go. Especially after all, I mean, you, Kelvin Sampson was let go because of a phone scandal or some shit like that. I mean, you know, compared to what Will Wade and Sean Miller is doing, what uh, Kelvin Sampson got fired for was not helping enough old ladies across the street. If you want to try to compare NCAA rule violation and the fact that he's no longer in Indiana, but yet Miller and Wade still have their jobs at Arizona and LSU respectively, so how's it? How Indiana been since Kelvin Sampson has been no has no longer been the coach, other than the uh, couple of years that Tom Crean gave them, um, well they were ranked I believe number one with Cody Zeller and a couple of other of those players, but so you know Houston is a team that while not from my Power Six conference is still good enough. I want to see the Michigans. I want to see the Ohio States. I want to see the Villanovas. I want to see the uh, Illinois. I want to see the Texases. I want to see the Kansas. I want to see the really good teams from the Power Six conferences move to the Sweet 16, move to the Elite Eight. Not really interested in upsets. But for a lot of you, hey, the upsets are what intrigues you. It's what uh, is so wonderful about March Madness. So is that one of the reasons why you're watching this tournament? Who knows? 
Also, another reason why I like to watch it is because I like to see the pro prospects. I want to see Cade Cunningham. I want to see Evan Mobley. I want to see Jalen Shrugs. I want to see these guys who are supposed to be lottery picks if they're playing in the tournament. I want to see a player who might be on the fringe of the lottery or might be a prospect who might be 24 or 26 when the tournament begins, all of a sudden uh, lead his team, and all of a sudden he moves from a prospect that's number 24 to someone that's a 12 or 11. I, I want to see if Kate Cunningham can cement his status as being the number one pick in the upcoming NBA draft with a performance that might be reminiscent of Carmelo Anthony, what he did when he led Syracuse to an NCAA championship. Someone like a Danny Manning when he led Kansas to the NCAA championship. Someone like a Kemba Walker when he led Connecticut to an NCAA championship. So I want to see which player who's supposed to be a high draft pick well, let's see if they're going to be able to do that with their teams. The more that they play, the more interested I am. And I'm quite sure the more they play, the more the, the happy, but the happier that um, pro scouts, uh, scouts are. So is that one of the reasons why you're watching? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole bunch of things. I'm, I'm happy to have the tournament back after a year. I'm missing uh, last season with the uh, COVID situation. Interesting to see some of the new Blue Bloods of college basketball, what they're going to be doing this season. Illinois, Brad, Under, Brad Underwood coming over from Oklahoma State has got himself a team that many people are saying have a really good shot of knocking off Gonzaga. If they play, if Gonzaga's playing their B game and Illinois is playing their B plus, A minus game. Uh, Baylor, a team that was ranked, you know, number one or number two for the longest this season in college basketball. Alabama. I mean, we think of Alabama, we think about Nick Saban and Alabama. Well, their basketball team is really damn good, too, with Nate Oates coming over from the University of Buffalo, Florida State. Leonard Hamilton, who used to coach the Washington Wizards one year for a 19-63 record before Jordan came in as the president of basketball operations and said enough of this. But uh, he's moved on to Florida State, and for years, he put on he put together a very good program down at Florida State. So is this going to be their year for that squad to make it to the final four. Um, Iowa with Luke Garza coming in for his last uh, season in college basketball. His last chance for him to be a relevant basketball player of any type of importance because when he reaches the NBA, too slow for him to have the type of impact that he's having right now for his team with Iowa. But we're not talking about the NBA. We're talking about college and the presumptive player of the year. Can he be the guy? to put a team on his back. Uh, so much guards that had meant to the community, to uh, 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 Iowa, that, uh, I don't know, Ames, I, Iowa State is in Ames, right? What city is Iowa in? The University of Iowa. I don't know. But for that community, he's been big. He's been important. And uh, is he going to be the guy that can uh, pull off the miracle, beat Gonzaga, and have Iowa make it to the Final Four and win the championship? And as I already mentioned before, Houston, um, Kelvin Sampson has put together a really good program down there. They might not be five slamma jamma. Ricky Winslow, Michael Young, Alvin Franklin, Larry Michaud, Akeem Olajuwon. They're not walking through that door. If they are, it's going to be to uh, root and cheer. But um, Houston under Kelvin Sampson, the Cougars, have themselves a good team. So without Duke or Kentucky in the tournament, First time since 1976 that those two teams are not in the tournament. Hey, we're going to have something where are you are you uh, 
are you going to be watching? Is your interest level dissipated because, you know, a lot of folks while watching the tournament, they, they root or either they, they either root or, you know, they root for Duke to win or lose along with Kentucky. You know, you know, it's like, who's going to, who do you want to win the tournament? I don't know. As long as it's not Duke or Kentucky, I don't care. And then you have, you know, very strong fan bases, especially when we're speaking about Kentucky. You know, is it nice that you're going to have a tournament without having to hear from the Kentucky uh, brethren, your Kentucky brethren, your, your Kentucky fan, who's going to be talking about Joe B. Howell? I mean, are we going to be uh, happy about that? Duke went 13 and 11 this year, had only one win against a ranked opponent. Kentucky, 9-16, Calipari. How does your ass taste now in terms of uh, that situation? I mean, yeah. One thing I will say as a respect for Calipari and Krzyzewski, you know, as, as they were losing, now Calipari at the beginning was kind of whining and moaning a little bit, and I think Krzyzewski got a little bit of you know, unnecessary flack when he was talking about, you know, what we need to do is we need to pause the season and then come back. And I think it was Nate Oates or there was someone in the SEC who called out Krzyzewski. He's like, oh, yeah, when your team stinks, now all of a sudden you want to cancel the season, huh? Oh, yeah, how convenient. And I think that, that Calipari was sitting there talking about because of COVID, you know, his team couldn't do this and his team couldn't do that, making excuses. But for the most part, I mean, uh, you know, those guys trudged through the season, never tried to stop coaching, coaching with the same intensity. So, I mean, it wasn't that much of a difference in terms of their uh, demeanor or anything, win or lose. So I didn't see any, like, any type of huge uh, change for the first time in forever. Those two coaches experienced not just mediocrity, but, you know, just bad basketball. Kentucky was bad. You know, his spots, they had some nice wins. But for the most part of the season, Kentucky was bad. Not just by Kentucky standards. I'm just talking about by college basketball, power, blue bloods type of standards. If you take a look at the roster that they had on that team, if you take a look at the five-star recruits, yeah, they might have all been freshmen, but still, 9-16 bad? It shouldn't have been that bad. That was a failure on Calipari's part as a coach. And Duke, you know, they were they had better talent than 13-11. and 11. You had the whole Patrick, um, oh my goodness gracious, the kid 6-9 who left uh, in the midway through the season, whose name right now I forgot, Johnson, I forgot the kid's name, but he's expected to be a lottery pick. He was a, he was a one and done. He decided that he was going to uh, um, lead the basketball program and get ready for the NBA uh, draft himself. And it was, it was a rocky season for both of those uh, highly regarded, highly successful basketball programs. But yet and still, I mean, their coaches, um, coaches did pretty well considering the circumstances. So in that regard... I was impressed because I don't know when Kentucky and Duke or Calipari or Krzyzewski is going to be that bad or going to do that bad of a job ever again for the remainder of their coaching career. So Duke, Kentucky, not in the tournament. So who's the Cinderella? Who are you going to be rooting for? Who are you going to be rooting against? If they're going to be a Cinderella team making a run, do you want to see a Cinderella team making a run? And let's kind of start... Right here. Let me go. Let me stop. And let me start right here with this. What's your definition of a Cinderella? Now, most folks are going to say it's a team from a small major school or a team that really hadn't done anything, a team that, you know, came into the tournament with 10 or 11 losses, and a team that got in by the skin of their titty, you know, the chinny chin chin, and 
they were a 12 seed or 11 seed or, or 10th seed. I mean, that's around the same. I mean, when you're speaking about the definition of what a Cinderella team is in the NCAA tournament, that's probably the area of where you're going to. Well, my definition of a Cinderella team in March, in March Madness, I like to say they're a team from a mid-major, low-major conference. And for me, a Cinderella is upsetting a ranked team from a major conference. It's not about winning the whole damn thing. It's not making the Final Four. It's not even making the Elite Eight or the Sweet 16. And it's also, as I mentioned before, it's also teams that are not from a Power Five conference. I'm, I'm, so when we talk about you know a, a Cinderella team being a team that's from that you know that they came in as a ninth seed or an eighth seed or a tenth seed and they make a run to the Elite Eight or to the Final Four, that might apply if they come from a mid-major or low-major conference. But I'm sorry, if you're from the Power Six conferences. No, no, that wouldn't qualify you as a true Cinderella in my eyes. So take, for instance, uh, this year, this year's tournament. North Carolina is the number eighth seed in the East, in the South Regional. Oklahoma State is number four in the Midwest Regional. Uh, Georgetown, my Georgetown Hoyas, as much as I love them, they're not a Cinderella. They're the number 12 seed in the South Regional. Syracuse, number 11 seed. Creighton, number five seed. They're not Cinderella's. Teams from the Power Six basketball conferences, naming the Big Ten, Big Twelve, ACC, Big East, SEC, Pac-12, that finish the season in the middle of the pack of their conference, they're not Cinderellas. No, I'm sorry, and especially they're not Cinderellas if, say, for instance, they make it to the Sweet Sixteen. Georgetown is a 12 seed. If they make it to the Sweet Sixteen and get blown out, Georgetown isn't the Cinderella. Or if they make it to the Sweet Sixteen, Georgetown's not a Cinderella. Georgetown down to Cinderella in the conference. Would you play Villanova? Would you play Creighton? Would you play uh, Providence? Would you had uh, games against West Virginia? And you play against that type of competition every night? That's not a Cinderella. North Carolina is not a Cinderella. They make it to the Sweet 16 and get their asses kicked. Not in playing in the ACC. Not when you have a roster full of four and five star recruits. No, that's not. That's not a. Uh, that's not a Cinderella story. That's a. Coach that's finally getting his act together after an underwhelming, underperforming season for a lot of these teams. Georgetown didn't um, underperform, but, you know, with the talent that they have, I mean, still, their their talent is much better than that of a low Division One, mid-Division One conference. Them making it to the second, um, making it out of the first weekend and making it to the Sweet 16. For a Cinderella run for one of those lower-tier schools, hey, man, getting out of the weekend is considered Cinderella to me. And if you take a look at the biggest Cinderella teams in NCAA tournament history, when they think about, oh my goodness, teams that came from nowhere, I can't believe it, this, that, and the other. Biggest upsets in NCAA history, and this, that, and the other. Championship runs, it's unbelievable. Everybody points to the 1983 National uh, NC State team, the 1985 Villanova team, the 1988 Kansas Jayhawk team, and then maybe the 2011-2014 Connecticut Huskies team that made their runs and won a national championship. When you talk about Cinderella's in the NCAA, March Madness, those are the teams, those are the situations, those are the events that people, most people bring up when they speak about true Cinderella's, unbelievable. Even They even bring in the uh, Fab Five, at least the first year, with uh, Ray Jackson and Jalen Rose and Jawan Howard and Chris Webber and those guys. The fact that the, the run that they made 
uh, five freshmen. I forgot who the fifth freshman was, but those guys making the run to the final game where they lost to Duke. And Duke uh, captured their second consecutive NCAA championship with a freshman by the name of Duke, uh, by uh, Grant Hill on their squad with Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and then was it Thomas Henderson, Thomas Hill, or something like that? I don't know. But uh, so, yeah, so even Michigan, I don't think, is considered a Cinderella. Just take, just take a look. Take a look at my definition of what a true Cinderella team is. And to take a look at what most people, you know, accompany the word Cinderella with when they're speaking about teams in the NCAA tournament in their history. Right, the 1983 NC State team. Oh, Jim Valvano, those guys made a 30 for 30 on it on ESPN. You know, the only reason why Jim Valvano even has some type of uh, credibility in terms of while, while his legend lives on, not so much for his fight against cancer, but that platform was given to him to be an impactful player in the fight against cancer based on what he did with the 1983 being the coach for the 1983 NC State uh, basketball team. The miracle run. And it was a great run. And it was an unbelievable run. And it was a fantastic run. But North Carolina State was not a Cinderella team. If you take a look at their squad, if you look, take a look at their talent, if you take a look at their expectations, they weren't a Cinderella team, in my opinion, under my definition. They entered that season ranked in the top 20, and they entered conference play ranked number 19 in the nation. So they ended the season ranked in the top 20. They finished the regular season 17 and 10 and 8 and 6 in the ACC. They lost their best player, uh, senior um, captain Derek uh, Wittenberg, the math high school, for 17 games during the season. He broke his foot against uh, Virginia when Virginia had Othello Wilson and Jeff Lamp and some guy named Ralph Sampson. Um, Virginia was ranked number one at that time. So basically, you know, NC State was playing neck and neck with those guys. Wittenberg breaks his uh, foot. And he misses the next 17 games. And in those games, North Carolina State went 10-7. and seven. That explains the amount of losses that they had. They didn't have their best player on the team. And that starting five, you take a look at that starting five. Kozel McQueen, 6'11", he was a good player. Derek Lowe, uh, Sidney Lowe and Derek Wittenberg were one of the best college guard uh, combos during that time when they played with Valdono. And they were both highly regarded high school players coached by um, Morgan Wooten at DeMatha High School. Thurl Bailey, the other starter on that team, was an all-ACC player that season who was the number seven pick in the NBA draft, in the 83 draft by the Utah Jazz. Lorenzo Charles, the one who made the dunk off the air ball by Wittenberg to uh, seal the victory for NC State over five slam jamma in Houston, 54-52. He was a highly regarded high school player out of Brooklyn who was a sophomore. This was a talented squad that we're talking about here. This wasn't some school from... I don't know what conference. I never heard of your conference, you, and Kim coming up and beating the big boys. They had played the big boys. Wittenberg and Lowe had, had four years of playing against the best of the best. Thurl Bailey was one of the best players in college basketball, and that was a talented squad. Terry Gannon was a shooter off that bench. I mean, they had a really good squad. So this wasn't something where it was, like, unbelievable. I can't believe North Carolina State did it. Now, the teams that they played, the first round that they had against Pepperdine where, you know, they won in double overtime, I think. The fact that, you know, in the ACC tournament, basically once the regular season was over, it was you lose a game, your season is done. So, yeah, they had to win the ACC tournament, beat North Carolina with Dean Smith, 
beat uh, Virginia with Terry Holland as their coach and Ralph Sampson, the number one team in the country, to uh, get to the tournament by winning the ACC championship. They did that. Then they made their run, run to the NCAA tournament, close game against Pepperdine. Then to make it to the Final Four, they beat Ralph Sampson in Virginia again to make it to the Final Four. And yet to win the championship, they had to beat, at that time, what many people thought was the unbeatable in the Houston Cougars. Because Alfred Franklin could have hit a, couldn't hit a free throw to save his life. And Clyde Drexler got three fouls in the first half when he jumped over Terry Gannon and they called a charge for it, which gave him his third foul in the first half, which kind of took the steam out of his sails for most of the game. Great coaching by, by Valvano. Poor coaching by, um, oh shit, I could, I'd see his name, but I forget his face. Whatever, the coach of Houston whose name escapes me right now. But uh yeah, it was a great it was a great run. It was a great run by NC State. But to say they were to say they were Cinderella's to say that this was just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. No, I don't I'm not buying into that based on what my definition of a Cinderella team in the NCAA basketball tournament March Madness is all about. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The 1985 Villanova Wildcats. Boy, it's going to hurt me to talk about this. Finished the regular season 19-10. and 10. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. Raleigh Massimino, this, that, and the other. Hey, man, Villanova had been a quality program in the Big East for years, so they weren't sneaking up on anybody, on anybody as far as the program was concerned. They finished the season 19-10, and 10, but, yeah, just take a look. During the regular season, the team that they beat in the uh, championship game, my Georgetown Hoyas, during the regular season, they only lost to them by a combined by nine points. They lost to them 52-50 at the uh, Palestria. And then at the Cap Center, they lost to uh, Georgetown 57-50. They beat Syracuse, but Syracuse was ranked number five in the country, 82-70. They were ranked number four in the country at one point during the regular season. So, I mean, this wasn't a situation, again, where all of a sudden, I can't believe it, this team did what they had to do. I mean, that team they beat, Memphis State with Keith Lee, they were better than that Memphis squad. And that was one of the better Memphis squads in a long time um, in the Memphis basketball program. So don't, don't give me, don't give me, give me Villanova being a Cinderella. Plus to uh, play Georgetown and to beat Georgetown, uh, Dwayne McClain and those guys had to get all drugged up. So there you go. And you take a look at the players on that team. Ed Pickney, Pickney was uh, drafted number 10 by the uh, Phoenix Suns, 6'9", slender guy, played center for Villanova. He was the number 10 pick in the 1985 NBA draft. Dwayne McClain was drafted in the second round by Indiana in the 85 draft. He was the 27th player pick. And Harold Presley, who was a sophomore at that time when they um, when they beat, you know, he was drafted number 17 in the first round in the 86 draft by the Sacramento Kings. So that team had pros on it also. So again, don't give me that Villanova was some Cinderella team. They weren't. They were a damn good team who got hot at the right time. Or you could say that they were an underachieving team compared to their talent who realized their talent who um, got hot and won a championship. Yeah. Danny and the Miracles, 1988, 88, Kansas Jayhawks squad, they were preseason ranked number seven. They finished 20-10 and 10 and in the upper half of the Big 8 conference, soon to be known as the Big 12. They had Larry Brown as their coach, Hall of Famer, and Danny Manning, a guy who was 6'11", could shoot the ball, could handle, could 
uh, play shooting guard, point guard, shoot from the outside. He was the player of the year and the number one pick in the NBA draft who had an awesome chance of being a Hall of Famer and being one of the better players of his generation if he hadn't had so many uh, knee injuries. So Danny Player was a once-in-a-generation type of player. He was being coached by one of the great coaches in Larry Brown. And yeah, it was amazing that they beat Billy Tubbs in the Oklahoma Sooners when they had Mookie Blaylock and Stacy King and I don't know what Grant, I don't know what Grant, I don't know, Horace or whoever, one of the Grant boys was playing on that team. But uh, yeah, that, you know, that was a big accomplishment. That was a huge accomplishment. But Kansas had already faced Oklahoma a couple of times that season. They knew what they were getting themselves into. And as I mentioned before, they had the talent to uh, be one of the ranked teams during the regular season. So that that wasn't Cinderella. 2011 Connecticut Huskies, coached by Jim Calhoun, Kimba Walker, they had a 21-9 record in overall. And they finished the regular season losing four out of their, their last five, which put them in a situation where, you know, they had to go ahead and get it. But Kimba Walker was a preseason Biggie's, all Biggie's first teamer. He was named to the both, he was named to both the Wooden and Naismith Award preseason watch list. He was a top ten pick in the NBA draft. So please don't 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 give me that nonsense. The, the, the Cinderella stories that you want to throw out through these teams? No, no. What those guys did, Kansas, Villanova, NC State, the 2011-2014 Connecticut Huskies, those quote-unquote Cinderella's that we always identify with, to me, that's not what they did. That's not on the same level of accomplishment as, say, in the 1979 tournament where you had the University of Penn and Ivy League school, who was the number nine seed, make it all the way to the Final Four where they got their asses kicked 101-67 by Michigan State, and they had some guy on their team by the name of... um. Oh, shit, what was his name? Number 32, one of the greatest point guards and basketball players who's ever lived and one of my main idols growing up who played for the L.A. Lakers and introduced Showtime. Oh, yeah, that's right, Magic Johnson and an underrated star in Greg Kelsler. So the University of Penn making it through to the Final Four, that was a bigger accomplishment than, say, what Kansas or Villanova or what NC State did. You had, in the 2011 tournament, Virginia Commonwealth, coached by Shaka Smart, who started their run by beating Georgetown. Fuck. They made it to the uh, Final Four. Or Butler with the number eight seed, they made it to the Final Four. So you had those two teams coming from no-name conferences, making it all the way to the Final Four. You had the 2013 tournament where you had Florida Gulf Coast, who was the 15th seed, basically putting a nail in the coffin of the coaching career at Georgetown for John Thompson III. That started their downward spiral, a spiral that Georgetown is just now coming out of. But they were the number 15th seed. They beat Georgetown and then San Diego State and made it to the Sweet 16, where they lost to Florida. With Wichita State that year, they were the number nine seed. They made it to the Final Four. They beat number one Gonzaga and number two Ohio State to get there. The 2006 tournament, how can we forget when George Mason the number 11 seed, they made it all the way to the Final Four by beating number one UConn with Rudy Gay uh, at the star of that team and number two uh, ranked Tennessee in their regional bracket. Those accomplishments by those type of teams are more impressive than an NC State 
with a bunch of highly regarded high school players and highly regarded college players and a and a and a lottery pick on their team. That that's what George Mason and VCU and Wichita State, what those t- guys did with Florida Gulf Coast making it to the Sweet 16, what those schools did, that was truly Cinderella. You can't have a top 25 recruiting class year after year and then be considered a Cinderella. Sorry, not happening. And even the word Cinderella, what would even require the, using a word Cinderella for, for a, a run in the tournament is different depending upon the school depending upon the history of your program, depending upon the size of the school, the conference, and all those type of things. Making it to the Elite Eight at the very least, or at the at, at the very most, a, a squad from one of the lower-tier tournaments or lower-tier conferences, those guys making it to the Sweet 16, those guys making it to the Elite Eight, that would be considered a significant magical run in the tournament. Highly successful run for a mid-major or a low-major team. I'm speaking about teams that represent the Patriot League, the Big South, the WAC, the American East, the Sun Belt, the Atlantic Sun, the SWAC, the Big Sky, Southern uh, Conference, the MEAC, Ohio Valley Leagues. Winning a game and beating our nationally ranked team and then receiving the national attention you get for 24 to 48 hours for that accomplishment, that is a awesome thing. I mean, hell, I'm up here, you know, shouting and cheering and hooping and hollering about the HBCU schools winning their play-in games. For those, for those teams, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, they're going to get their asses whooped by Michigan and Gonzaga. But just getting into the tournament for them is a huge accomplishment. You can't say that about some team from the Power Six Conference. Michigan State lost to UCLA. No one at UCLA is up there talking about how wonderful and how magical and how incredible it is that UCLA is is now playing uh, in the tournament going up against BYU. No. And if if, um, UCLA beats BYU and they make it to the Sweet 16, or makes it out of the uh, first weekend, no one's going to be sitting up there talking about what a magical season, what a magical run, time to put the Cinderella label on this team. For UCLA? No. Have you seen their team? Have you seen their makeup? Have you seen the pedigree of their players? Have you seen their players' resume? Have you seen how talented they are? That ain't no goddamn Cinderella team compared to a Liberty Flame, compared to a... team from the Big Sky or from the Big South or from the American East or from the Ohio League? No, 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 no. You take someone like a Liber- like the Liberty Flames, who are the number 13 seed in the Midwest. They play Oklahoma State in the opening round, then they have the possibility of playing Tennessee, and then if everything goes crazy, they play Illinois. Those team- That team is on a 13-game winning streak. They have the Atlantic Sun Player of the Year, and Darius McGee, who averaged almost 16 points a game. And Richie, Richie McKay, I remember him coaching at uh, Oregon State. So he had some experience coaching in a major conference. If the Liberty Flames can go ahead and beat Oklahoma State with the number one player in the draft, Cade Cunningham, and then beat uh, Tennessee from the SEC, and then give Illinois a game, and now we're talking. If they can reach the Sweet 16, now we're talking. UCLA can go ahead and win the whole damn thing. That ain't the Cinderella. It's impressive. It's great. Mickey Cronin's going to get a nice, big, fat contract extension. 
And UCLA is going to get a real bump off of that success with a lot of the recruits from the West Coast in the Southern California area. It'll be wonderful. It'll be awesome. It'll be one of the greater runs in UCLA basketball history. But no, I wouldn't say that that run would be more magical or more impressive than if Liberty made it to the Sweet 16 or the Ohio Bobcats, who are the number 13 seed, made it to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that at all. So it's all about what your perception is. I'm taking a look like the Iona Gales, right? If you're looking for a team that might pull an upset, try Iona. The number's 15 seed in the East. They play number two Alabama in the first round, then they could play the winner of UConn and Maryland and then play Texas. You know the reason why I say possibly, maybe, if you're going to go with a team that's like, you know, if you're looking at a two versus 15 or three versus 14 or four versus 13, if you're looking for an upset, if I was going to tell you which there was going to be an upset amongst a... 2 and 15, 3 and 14, 4 and 12 type of scenario, or 4 and 5 and 12, whatever it is. If, if I told you a 15 seed, 14 seed, or 13 seed was going to win, if I told you that and you had to pick one, I would say it would be the Iona Gales beating Alabama because Rick Bettino is the coach of Iona. That's it. They won the Metro Atlantic uh, tournament. Uh, Championship, conference uh, championship. They came into that tournament ranked ninth or seeded ninth. They won four games in a row. And we know Rick Pitino can coach. Uh, we know he can cheat his ass off. We know that he can cheat on his wife. We know that he can do all that. He, he didn't get the moniker Slick Rick for uh, because he liked the rapper. But uh, that man can coach his ass off. <laughs> that man can definitely coach. So if you're taking a look at a possible... Uh, upset, I would uh, do that. And if they did that, then that would be a big, I mean, they could beat um, Alabama and then lose the next round to, say, UConn. For Patino and those guys, that would be a huge hell of an accomplishment more than, say, if UCLA made it all the way through to the Elite Eight. In my opinion. In my opinion. In my opinion. So, you know, the best situation for Cinderella's, if you're a guy like me, is that, yeah, I don't mind a couple of upsets, but all I know is by the Sweet 16, the Elite 8, and the Final Four, I want to see chalk. In the Final Four, I want to see four number ones. If I can't get four number one seeds in the uh, Final Four, then I want three number ones and a number two. And if I can't get that, I want two number ones and two two and two number twos. Don't give me Wichita State. Don't give me the Ohio Bobcats. Don't give me Iona. Don't give me... Uh, Oregon State, I'll take Georgetown because I'm biased. But other than that, I want Gonzaga, I want Michigan, I want Illinois, and I want who's the number who's the other number one seed? Illinois, Michigan. Wow, I can't believe I don't remember what the number one seeds are. I must be getting late. Gonzaga, Illinois, Michigan. Fuck, I sound like Charles Barkley. Uh, but uh, but just, just the four number one seeds. I'll remember it like in about a couple of hours. I'll wake up in a cold sweat from my dream of making love to Halle Berry, and I'll remember what the number four number four uh, number one seed is. So whatever. But uh, yeah, I want to see chalk. I'm not interested in mid majors 
low majors, the Patriot League, the Colgates, and the uh, other squads, uh, you know, go away. I want to see the Blue Bloods. I want to see Ohio State. I want to see uh, Kansas. I want to see Texas. I want to see those schools play. And you know what? Most times, TV execs want the same thing. So college basketball, the tournament is around us, is right upon us. Cinderella, Cinderella, what's your definition of Cinderella? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world of sports today. Most of it I'll be speaking about on another podcast. But for this podcast, it's all about, for the most part, the NCAA tournament. Right around the corner should be starting, I believe, in about seven hours or so. Don't know what the first games are. But uh, March Madness is upon us after a one-year hiatus. The overwhelming prohibitive favorites to win the championship is the team from Spokane, Washington. They are the Gonzaga Zags. Zig when you shoot a Zag. The Bulldogs. My, my, my question is, is, is about this. Does anybody know or care that Gonzaga can go undefeated this season? Does it interest you that they're the first team to complete an undefeated regular season since, since Kentucky in 2015? Does that you know? Does that get you excited? Does that start? Do you do you dance to Charleston when you hear that? They have the opportunity to be the first team to go undefeated the entire season since in Indiana did it in nineteen seventy six. Does that get you doing the kitten play? Does that get you so excited that you got to jump up and do the James Brown? I I don't understand why Gonzaga isn't getting the attention it deserves. I I I I, I don't get it. They've been one of the most dominant teams. This is not a fluke. This is not something where it's like, well, you know, because of COVID, you know, and all this, that, and the other, it makes for a team like Gonzaga that have this type of season. No, 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 no. Gonzaga has been the most dominant team in college basketball this season. And they've been that way for years. But if you want to take this season, for instance, they're 26-0 in the regular season, right? 25 of those wins have been by double-digit margins, and 16 of those wins have been by 20 or more points. And yeah, yeah, they've beaten up on the Prepper Nines, and they've beaten up on the Mount St. Mary's, and they've beaten up on the um, San Francisco Dons, and they've beaten up on them folks. But let me tell you something. The teams that are in their region who are second and third and fourth seeds, Iowa, Kansas, and Virginia, in the Western in the West region, they've already beaten that. They've already beaten those guys this year. In fact, Gonzaga scored 102 points against Kansas back in November when Kansas, I believe, was a top three, top four team. They put 99 on Iowa when they were ranked in the top five on a neutral site. And they also beat um, uh, Virginia, who is the defending national champions because they won it in 2019, 2020, no tournament. So technically, 
Virginia is still the defending NCAA tournament basketball champions. They put up 98 against a Tony Bennett squad. Tony Bennett, the way he coaches at Virginia, if you put up 60, that's the equivalent of scoring like 110, the way that uh, they're paced to play and how good they are both on offense and defense. So Gonzaga is no joke. They are, as I mentioned before, legitimately one of the best college basketball programs over the past five or six years. One of the two schools that have been majorly overlooked and disrespected along with Villanova. Because we keep speaking about Duke and we keep speaking about Kentucky, but why aren't we giving more love and credit for what Gonzaga has done over the last five years? They've Since 2016, they've made the Sweet 16 uh, every year in the NCAA tournament. Two of those trips, they went to the Elite Eight. They went to the 2017 National Championship game where they lost a tough game to uh, North Carolina. They produced a first-round pick in three of the last five NBA drafts. Zach Collins, that uh, he, he didn't even start. Their first one-and-done player at Gonzaga who played in the uh, 2017 National Championship game, he was a lottery pick. Rudy Hachimura, a guy who was completely off the recruiting radar, he was a first-round pick by my Washington Wizards. Jalen Shrugs, their best player this year, the best player probably in um, program history. He's going to be a one-and-done player. He's going to be a top-three pick. I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why Gonzaga is not getting more of the love. I think they're still considered to be a overachieving mid-major. If not overachieving, they're still considered somewhat of a mid-major. No, they're just as good of a basketball program as Kansas and as Duke and Kentucky and anybody else you want to throw in there who uh, who has been great. North Carolina, Villanova, they're, they're just as good or better than those programs. And the way that they are, the way that they run their their program, they have longer sustainability to be at a high level than say a Duke or a Kentucky who relies mostly on one and dones. And we and we've seen a couple of times with Kentucky over the past ten years that just because you bring in five or six five star recruits and three or four of them think that they're going to be one and dones and be lottery pick picks, that doesn't instantaneously mean that they're going to be uh, favorites to win the championship or be one of the top teams in the um, in the country. And when you have the type of program that Gonzaga has built, you know, sometimes, I mean, a lot of it's based on the fact that, you know what, they can't go ahead and get five-star recruits at the same rate that a major program like Duke and Kentucky and Kansas and such can do. So the way they build a program, similar to uh, almost like a college football team or similar to Villanova, it's sort of like you bring in these guys who fit your culture, who fit your philosophy, who fit the way that you want to play, and they let them learn. And when that player graduates or goes to the NBA after either being a really good college basketball player or being a guy who's ready to uh, make some money in the NBA, they have somebody there to uh, fill in that spot and be just as good and sometimes better. So the way that they have, the, you know, if you take a look at this team, the way that they have a balance of talent and experience, I think it's the best blend when you consider those two attributes, talent and experience. I think it kind of reminds me of the North Carolina team that won the championship in 2009. Remember that team with Roy Williams? They had a consensus, consensus national player of the year 
and Tyler Hansborough, along with seniors Wayne Ellington and Ty Lawson. They had Ed Davis. They had a really good recruiting class. Um, I, I think as far as talent and experience is concerned, that's the closest I think Gonzaga, if you want to start comparing teams under that uh, under that baseline, I think you have to throw North Carolina of 2009 in there, who, by the way, won the championship. They have Jalen Shrugs as their best player, freshman point guard, top five NBA pick this upcoming draft. They have a senior Corey Kespert, who's the best shooter in college. Not Maybe not best long-range shooter, but just in terms of all three levels, finishing at the rim, the mid-range shot, and then the three-point shot, I think in college basketball, it's got to be Corey Kispert. And uh, he's a former three-star recruit who's uh, made himself into a first-round prospect in this upcoming draft, a guy who has a talent for the NBA in terms of a skill set that'll work for the NBA and let him be on an NBA uh, a roster for about 8 to 12 years, his ability to shoot. Think of Luke Kennard. Sophomore big man Drew Timmy, he's averaging 19 points a game, about almost nine rebounds per game. All three of those players that I just mentioned, Crispert, Timmy, and Shrugs, they're on the list of the 15 finalists for the Wooden Award, which is, you know, given to the most outstanding player in college basketball that season. So I, I, don't, I don't get it. They got the talent. They got the resume. They got the pedigree. Their style of play, they play an exciting brand of basketball, fast fast break, fast tempo. They play at the you know, third fastest tempo in the nation this season. They became the first team since 2008 to average 90 points a game. On defense, they play uh, full press, full court press, so it keeps the game moving, it keeps the game grooving. And as I mentioned before, if you want to say, well, you know, they've uh, gotten all those numbers and all of those statistics and that record based upon playing in a uh, low-tier conference. No, no, no. I just mentioned what they did to Iowa. I just mentioned what they did to Kansas. I just mentioned what they did to uh, some of the better teams that they played this season, some of the ranked teams that they played this season. Not ranked between 15 and 25. I'm speaking about ranked between anywhere between number two and number five, number six in the nation at that time. Not at the kennel where they play their home courts, uh, where they play their home games, but at a neutral site. So what you going to do? What's it going to take? Why aren't they re- why aren't they receiving the love and attention and respect that uh, Michigan State or North Carolina or a Kansas, Kentucky Duke w- would receive if they had the same type of dominant season? Could you imagine if if Krzyzewski had his team rolling like this? Could you imagine if Bill Self had his team rolling like this? Could you imagine if Calipari had his team rolling like this? Could you imagine? Could you think of Roy Williams if he had his team rolling like this? Why isn't Gonzaga getting anywhere close to the love and respect that those teams and those coaches would have gotten. Well, I think it's perception of the program, the geographical location, the personality makeup of the team, and its coach. I think those are all problems. As you're speaking about why isn't Gonzaga the toast of the town? Why isn't Gonzaga the talk of the tournament? I think that's the reason. Here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Because Gonzaga didn't play in the ACC, because they don't play on uh, ESPN, that Monday night game at 7 p.m. Eastern, because they don't play on that Tuesday night game, uh, which the Big Ten and the uh, Big 12 play 7 p.m. Eastern time and 9 p.m. Eastern time, because they don't play in the Pac-12 with their own networks, because they don't play in the Big 12, which was a very good, good conference this season, 
<clears throat> because they don't play in the Big Ten, which was the best conference this season for college basketball, because they don't play in the ACC where you can have these rivalry games against North Carolina and Duke once or twice a year, because they're not in those situations, they're kind of flown off the radar. They're not really paid attention to. When can you see Gonzaga play basketball? If you're going to watch Gonzaga play basketball, the majority of the time is going to be at 9.30 at night, Eastern Standard Time on ESPN2 or ESPN+. Plus. They're not going to be like Duke, where you're going to have them prime time almost every game, if not on ESPN, being ESPN2. It's not going to be that situation like Kentucky or North Carolina or one of the better-known squads in college basketball, better-known programs in college basketball. And because they play in the WCC, who's their biggest rival in the WCC? Randy Bennett and St. Mary's? BYU? Who's interested in watching Gonzaga beat up on Pepperdine? Or beat up on San Francisco? Or beat up on Loyola Marymount? Hank Gathers definitely ain't walking through that door. Bo Kimball ain't walking through that door. And Paul Westhead in seven seconds ain't walking through that door. So that Loyola Marymount basketball team, as far as being any type of uh, presence, is long gone. Lorenzo Romar might be the coach at Pepperdine. He ain't getting the same type of players that he was getting at when he was coaching um, when he was coaching at Washington. A Brandon Roy type ain't coming through the door at Pepperdine unless he's transferring from a major D1 school or he was severely overlooked, which if you're that good with Brandon Roy, that ain't happening. Where that type of mistake is going to lead someone that good to go to Pepperdine. I don't care what local. I don't care if it is in Malibu. So because of that, and because of the conference that they're playing, Gonzaga has thought of that, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Again, they're not in the ACC. They don't have a contract with ESPN to put them on primetime television during uh, February and uh, January. So there they go. You, you can watch them on CBS in the mornings when they play in the neutral site. You, you can watch them during the weekend. They, they get some prime time there for the most part. And the smart thing that Mark Few does is that in the preseason, yeah, he'll go ahead. He'll um he'll schedule teams ranked in the top five, ranked in the top ten. He doesn't mind playing them at a neutral site. He doesn't even mind going on the road to play those guys. One thing I will say, one of the benefits of playing in the WCC, if you're Gonzaga, is the fact that, you know what, you can go ahead and you can play the Blue Bloods and you can be at a disadvantage in terms of where they play and when they play and those type of things. And if you finish the preseason after an incredibly tough schedule, three and five, if you're Gonzaga, it doesn't matter. Because as soon as you get back to your own conference, the WCC, you're going to be running off victory after victory after victory to... um, to uh, make your schedule look, to make your record look better, better. And when you play in that tournament down here in Vegas, the winner gets an automatic bid. And for the most times, Gonzaga's going to win that tournament. So they're going to get an automatic berth to begin with. So if you're Mark Few, why not schedule the hell out of your preseason and play games and put your team in, in uh, disadvantaged situations? Because losses, for the most part, aren't going to hurt you as much because you know you're going to dominate your conference. So that might be great, but the perception then is the fact that, again, they're not in a conference with the major players. You kind of forget those guys after preseason basketball is over and college basketball is over and a Maui Invitational and all these other 
uh, tournaments that happen during the holiday season. They're, they're done with. And Gonzaga flies off the radar, radar and they go ahead and they compete in their conference. Meanwhile, you have Duke playing against North Carolina. You have North Carolina playing against NC State. You have Kentucky playing against Auburn. You have Villanova playing against Xavier. You have Michigan playing against Ohio State. You have Texas going up against Oklahoma. And, you know, UCLA against USC. And meanwhile, you have out there in Spokane, Washington, Gonzaga playing in a gym against Loyola Marymount. Not the same damn thing. So Gonzaga is kind of forgotten about. And you turn around and you're like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Gonzaga's 18-0 and they're blowing everybody out by 30? Interesting. So, again, the perception of the program takes a hit on why Gonzaga didn't get the love and attention and affection that I think it rightfully deserves. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Again, why doesn't uh, Gonzaga get love? Location, location, location. Gonzaga is located in Spokane, Washington, which is, I don't know, maybe a stone throws away from the Idaho border. Not really a major market and not really in the state known for his love of college sports. This ain't Bloomington, Indiana. This ain't Lexington, Kentucky. This ain't Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And just go to a bigger market. This ain't Los Angeles, California. This ain't Washington, D.C. This ain't Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This ain't New York, New York. You're speaking Spokane, Washington. What happens in Spokane, Washington? What's going down in Spokane, Washington? What's interesting to the masses in Spokane, Washington? What's worth a damn to the college basketball fans in Spokane, Washington? So again, most of their conference games are played on ESPN2, ESPN Plus, 9.30 at night, Eastern Standard Time. No one's paying attention. No one's caring. And again, when you can watch these rivalry games and rivalry week and have the uh, big weeks and Jay Billis calling your games, if you're Duke or Kentucky or Kansas or Michigan or, or schools from the other uh, uh, powers, uh, conference powers who are ranked and who are doing well, when was the last time Jay Billis went out to Gonzaga to call a WCC conference game with, Gon- with Gonzaga? When was the last time they brought Dan Schulman? When was the last time that um, they brought anybody? Vital even. When was the last time those guys did a Gonzaga game in February or in January or a conference game? They're not doing that bullshit. They're concentrating on the uh, the Power Five, Power Six conference games. Now they're not concentrating on the Big East games because they're part of the Fox. Uh, they're part of uh, part of Fox Sports. Bill Rafferty ain't going to be calling any Gonzaga games unless it's going to be a neutral site game. Against uh, uh, another opponent from another conference, not going to be happening. So out of out of touch, out of sight, out of mind. So yeah, that's that's the deal. Gonzaga again, perception, their reality, also their program itself. They're not a one and done college basketball factory. So because of that, you know, exception being shrugs. And probably the other exception being Chet Holmgren, as I mentioned before, this year's number one high school player. Either he's going to the G League or he's going to Gonzaga. For the most part, they don't bring in headlining recruiting classes. They don't bring in Fab Fives. They don't bring in a class that has Zion, RJ, and and Cam. They don't bring in four or five five-star recruits with three of them being lottery picks after one year. That's not how Gonzaga rolls. 
If you take a look at their recruiting rankings, rankings from 2016 and 2021, oh, and by the way, during those years, they were highly successful as a basketball program. Before Suggs, who was a five-star recruit, number 11 ranked in the country according to uh, 24-7, before he committed to Gonzaga, the highest-ranked recruit to go to Gonzaga during that time was Drew Timmy, who was ranked number 43 in the class, four-star recruit from uh, Texas, the 2019 class. That's it. That's the highest. Does Duke, Kentucky, and those guys... Do they get anything less than a top 25 recruit? When was the last time you saw Duke or Kentucky bring on a a three-star recruit? Bring on a guy who was ranked 55th, 75th, 85th. When was the last time you saw Krzyzewski, Bill Self, Calipari bring in a recruiting class where you had multiple players outside of the uh, top 80 or top 100? Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Three-star recruits aren't going to Kentucky. No four-star recruits aren't going to uh, North Carolina or or Duke for the most part. A couple might slide in every now and then. But for the most part, what makes their team so strong are the four or five guys in that class who are ranked number two, number eight, number 11, number 17, number 26. Gonzaga, for the most part, they don't get those type of recruiting classes. Again, Shrugs was a top 10 guy. Shrugs was a top 10 guy. But that class wasn't accompanied, accompanied with shrugs with another guy who was ranked 23rd overall, another guy who was ranked 25th overall, and then another guy who was ranked 32nd overall. That's not what Gonzaga does. Again, from 2016 to 20, uh, 2021, their recruiting classes have ranked 46, an average of 46 in the country. When was the last time you saw Duke or Kentucky or any of those schools fall out of the top five in terms of recruiting classes is concerned over the past 10, 15 years, or at least if you're Kentucky, once Calipari got there to take over from Billy Gillespie. Hasn't been. So because of that, no one really cares. No no one. Now, if Zion and Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett, if those guys would have gotten to Gonzaga, hey, now we're talking. If Anthony Davis and Michael Kidd Gilchrist and... And um, Daniel Orton and a couple of other of those guys, they went to um, Gonzaga that same year. Hey, now we're talking. And those programs get those type of players. You have those type of classes year after year after year, which makes me smile when I see that Kentucky brought in another top three recruiting class, top two recruiting class, finished the season 9-16. and it's funny that, once again, Duke bringing in a top two, top three recruiting class finished the season 13 and 11 because Matthew Hurt, while being a five-star recruit, is not a one-and-done one and type of player. Vernon Carey, last uh, season uh, number one player in a lot of publications, or at least top ten, who was a five-star recruit, he only stayed one year, but he wasn't a lottery pick. He got picked in the second round uh, in the NBA draft. So just because those guys are bringing, you know, four or five, you know, potential one-and-dones, that doesn't automatically transfer to wins. Yeah, when you had Jaleel Okafer and Justice Winslow and uh, Tyus, shoot, the kid from Minnesota whose brother went to Duke. Tyus, I keep thinking of Tyus Edney, it's not that. But, you know, sometimes you do have those type of classes over the last five or ten years for Duke and Kentucky, which contribute and, and, and do greatly. 
You take a look at the 2015 Kentucky class, which brought in Carl Anthony Towns and Devin Booker and those guys, you know, going 38 and one. But that's not that's sexy. That's interesting. That'll get you on ESPN. That'll get you talked about by Seth and Lafonso and when he was doing college basketball, Jay Williams and such. That'll that'll get you if college basketball is going to be shown on the Mike Greenberg show and be talked about on the uh, Max Kellerman show or the Molly uh, Quirm Rose show over on ESPN, the talking head shows on the TV screens. Yeah, those type of recruits will get uh, get you an audience, will get you uh, some play in terms of talking about that. That's not happening with Gonzaga. Gonzaga brings in boring. Gonzaga brings in underwhelming in terms of, if you're on the Mike Greenberg show in the morning, are you going to be talking about the number 23rd class that Gonzaga brought in? No. But if you're going to be talking about Duke bringing in Zion and Camp, yeah, we'll talk about that. We won't give it a lot of time, but we'll definitely talk about it. That's how those guys get love. That's not how Gonzaga rolls. 2017, they had a their, their recruiting class for Gonzaga. It was ranked 120th in the nation. 120th! Every team that played college basketball seemed to have a better recruiting class going into that year than uh, Gonzaga. During that span, where Gonzaga had been one of the most dominant programs in college basketball, one of the most high-level programs in college basketball, 2017, they had a recruiting class that was ranked 120th. In fact, it was a one-man recruiting class. You know who that player was? That one player that Gonzaga recruited? Corey Kispert, who was out of uh, Washington, Seattle, Washington, and was ranked number six, 106th in the country. He wasn't a five-star. He wasn't a one-and-done he wasn't a immediate program changer. He wasn't Anthony Davis. He wasn't Zion. He wasn't Carmelo. He wasn't any of those guys. But who's one of the best players in college basketball right now? And who's going to be a first-round draft pick? The same guy that Gonzaga recruited and was the only player recruited in that 2017 recruiting class that was ranked 120th. So again, they recruit Gonzaga recruits and runs that program like a football team, like a goddamn college football team. Players stay, they learn the system, they learn the culture, and when the vets take over, those players that have learned for a year or two, they're ready to uh, take over. Or those players who had a lesser role are now ready to take over. I'm quite sure that when Suggs and Chris Kispert leave, there could be players there to uh, take their place. They might not do as well as Kispert, who's one of the best players in college basketball, and Scruggs, who's an NBA, potential NBA all-star perennial. But they'll have enough players, and they'll have enough uh, talent to, uh, if they might not be as good as those guys, but they're going to be damn close. So Gonzaga's culture and their coach, they're boring. They're boring. Mark Few is not some loud, obnoxious, overbearing, glory hound jerk. This program's never been accused of breaking any NCAA rules. You don't hear about hookers and strippers entertaining recruits on their visits at Gonzaga. Mark Few has never been in some type of scandal where he's cheated on his wife and the person that he cheated on is trying to extort money from him. 
Never, never, there's never been accusations of his players taking phony classes to stay eligible. These guys actually get real degrees. There's never been accusations of players driving around Spokane in expensive cars that they got from dealerships with, uh, uh, you know, their with their handshake deals. They're not selling their paraphernalia to get tattoos. None of the coaches or Mark Few have never been accused of making strong ass offers to recruits to get the player to come in on campus. He's never been caught making uh, those type of uh, uh, those type of uh, deals. He doesn't have a, a, a Dawkins. He doesn't have a Chuck Persons on his staff to go ahead and to make sure that the player is taken care of financially. Never had, never heard any of those accusations. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen because I'm not I'm not there. But I've never heard anything like that. You know, there hasn't been any Will Waiting or Sean Millering uh, with Mark Few at his program at uh, Gonzaga. They're like the Tim Duncan dynasty, the San Antonio Spurs in terms of seeking attention. They don't want it. They don't need it. They'll win. They'll kick your ass, and uh, they'll do what they need to do. They don't need to have their coach get on every single show on ESPN, get in front of every single microphone, get in front of every single camera, and be some obnoxious glory hound like the jackass that's coaching in Lexington, Kentucky. They don't need that. They're doing well just the way they're doing. So, in a, in a small way, once Georgetown gets eliminated, either on Saturday or against Florida State, I'm going to be rooting really hard to see uh, Gonzaga win the uh, championship. Because, as far as I know of, they do things the right way. When when you hear the stuff about student-athletes and doing it the right way and blah, 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 and how you should uh, build your program, I think the two schools that have exemplified that the best in terms of what it should be to the to the purest, the two programs, I think, are Villanova and Gonzaga, soon to be Georgetown. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for that team that gets no respect, no love, or not, not enough. I'm rooting for uh, Gonzaga. And I hope that they finish 32-0 and or 20, wherever they are. I hope they finish undefeated and win their championship because uh, the way they built their program, they've done everything but win a championship. And I sure hope this year, if it ain't going to be Georgetown, which it ain't, I'm sure hoping that this season's tournament champions will be Gonzaga. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Moving on past the midnight hour, in the words of Wilson Piggott. Going on now, 1.30 in the morning. I'm fine. Hanging in there. Doing well. I can do it. I can do it. NFL news. I want to hit this very quickly. I want to uh, 
discuss this, and I, I, I want to, uh, I want to tread lightly on this subject because it's concerning Deshaun Watson and some allegations, multiple allegations here. A third civil suit filed against Deshaun Watson. Watson alleges the Houston Texans quarterback forced a massage therapist to perform oral sex on him during a session with a woman in December of 2020. Now, this is the third sexual assault and harassment civil suit filed against Watson since Tuesday, each involving a female massage therapist, which is represented by Houston attorney Tony Busby. Um, According to an Instagram post from Busby on Wednesday, why is a lawyer, by the way, posting anything on Instagram? At least six separate suits alleging assault will be filed against Watson. Thus far, all three suits contain a similar pattern of allegations. The allegations are that Watson arranged massage sessions with the different women through Instagram, then made sexual advances during the course of his treatment that escalated to varying degrees of of assault. And according to the lawsuit, Watson connected with the women via Instagram and scheduled a massage for December 28th in Houston. Similar to allegations in the two other lawsuits, the women said Watson was only wearing a small towel when she entered the room to perform the massage. Watson allegedly became aggressive, forcefully forcefully telling her to move her hands down to his public area. And according to the suit, Watson said that he could, quote, help or hurt her career, unquote, and the women, quote, was afraid of what someone like Watson could do if she did not submit to his demands, unquote, to perform oral sex on him. Ah, oh, man, jeez. I don't know, man. This is, you know, the women said she did not contest. Now, Deshaun had denied all, the, all allegations on a Twitter post on Tuesday. He said in the post, Watson said that he was approached about a six-figure settlement but wanted to, quote-unquote, clear his name. And he also uh, accused Busby personally of being out for the money. How about that lawyer, high-priced lawyer, being out for the money? Ambulance chasing. A lawyer? No. He said, quote, I have never treated any women with anything other than the utmost respect. Uh... That's what he said. I, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know these women. I don't know Deshaun Watson. So uh, th- this is not going to be a, all oh, these women are full of shit. No way this could happen. Deshaun's too great of a guy, this, that, and the other. And this is also not going to be a, ah, another athlete fooling us again. I knew that he was a no good, low down son of a bitch when he said that he wanted to uh, be traded from Houston. See, now the true Deshaun Watson is starting to come to the forefront right now. Uh-huh. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I don't know. So everyone, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who to believe. I'm not going to take a stance either way on this. It's not me being weak. It's just a situation was, look, man, there's been too many times. How many times? As far as women have been uh, have been sexually abused, sexually assaulted, everything under the sun, as far as the disrespect is concerned, by people who we would never think of doing anything like that. Never. We don't know these people. We weren't there. We don't know any of the women. We don't know if these women are gold diggers. We don't know if these women are true victims. We don't know. 
And until we find out one way or the other, if we find out that they are gold diggers and they're no good lying pieces of shit who are looking for a payday, then yeah, picture, name, everything about them to the public. Let's go. Let's go. Call them out if they're lying. No doubt about it. But until that time comes, I don't want to know these women's name. I don't want to know their what they do. I don't want the press to get a hold of these women. And all of a sudden now they're, you know, their their privacy becomes uh, becomes ruined and everything. No, I don't, I don't, I don't want that to happen. Let's see how this works. And I know for black folks, it's like mm, you're going to really put your hands and put your faith and trust into the criminal criminal justice uh, criminal justice system. What more can you do? Deshaun has done everything that he can do. He's come out. He's strongly denied these things have, have happened from. Thousands upon thousands of miles away, Deshaun looks like the type of guy who could never do these things. But I don't know. And you don't know. Now, I will say this. I've, I've heard some bullshit. I've heard some nonsense about the Houston Texans somehow are setting up are, are setting up Deshaun Watson to look foolish in this situation. Like, like what in the hell would that, what in the hell would that do? We're going to find these women that make these, disgusting allegations against you so you can say, ah, you know what? I think I'll come back and play football for the Houston Texans. That that doesn't make any sense. That, that's idiotic beyond belief. So the, the Houston Texans who have said that, look, they released a statement saying they take the accusation seriously but would not make any further statements at this time. That's the correct thing to do because you don't know because they don't know. So let's let's see how things work out. And then we'll move on from here. But in the Me Too movement, and with the advancement of respect for women women concerning these matters, we've got to be careful. And we can't go to the speculation route of, well, obviously, these women are... Why? Because Deshaun Watson's an awesome quarterback? They come from the outside looking in, Deshaun Watson would never do anything like that. How would you know? Why? Because he looks a certain way? Because he acts a certain way. Again, I'm not saying that he did. I'm not saying that he did. I'm just saying I'm going to hold off. Before I make any type of... I need, I need more evidence. Before I start uh, uh, before I start saying who's right and who's wrong. I don't know. I don't know. But this is a new day and time. And I think as a society we need to recognize that. And we need to go ahead and we need to say, man, look, you know what? Before we start going the old route by saying Deshaun Watson can never do this because he's a great guy and he does great work in the charity and he's a wonderful young man and he's a God-fearing man and you see his upbringing and he's soft-spoken and everything like that. So there's no fucking way that he could do this. And you know how these women are. They go after these rich guys and they're gold diggers and this, that, and the other. And they bring up a few examples of that happening. That could be true. That could be a perfect lie. Deshaun Watson could be the greatest actor in the world. We don't know what's happening. In a situation like this. We just don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And I'm not going to comment either way until I do know. I, I just wanted to bring this as as news. Because this is news. How does this affect him being traded? Not being traded? Remember of the Texans organization? Uh, the, his relationship with the fan base? With the Texans community? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think these allegations are going to stop teams from pursuing him. 
especially when we're talking about the NFL and you can get a franchise quarterback, not, not only do I think these allegations wouldn't stop teams who are desperate for quarterbacks to stop trying to go after them, I, I think if all of these things were true, if Deshaun Watson really did these things, I don't think it would stop the Chicago Bears or the Philadelphia Eagles or the Denver Broncos or any other team. I don't think it would stop them at all from going after Deshaun Watson. Not only that, I don't think it would stop them from not only going after Deshaun Watson, but seeing what they can do to make this quote-unquote problem go away. I mean, how much are we talking about here? How much do we have to pay? How much do we have to uh, make? How, how big of a check do we have to write to make this problem go away so Deshaun can come to our new city being the face of our franchise. We can't have the face of our franchise being a guy with a sexual assault charge hanging over him. This has got to be a situation where, you know, you got to have some smart people come into the room and say, hey, look, you know what? This is all based on the fact that if Deshaun Watson did this, I don't know if he did. I'm not accusing him if he did. I'm just playing this scenario. It's just in case he did do this. If I'm the owner of a football team, would I go after Deshaun Watson if he did all these things? If I'm the Washington football team, I'm a fan of the Washington football team. If there was some way to get Deshaun Watson on our football squad to be a top five, top three quarterback for the next five, eight, 10, 12 years, and he did what he did, would that stop me from trying to get Deshaun Watson to be on the Washington football team? Hell fucking no. (laughs) Is that ignorant? Is that pathetic? Is that sad? Is that short-sighted? Yeah. You want to call me those things concerning this banner? I'll take it. I'll wear it. Not proud of it. But it is what it is. We haven't won a championship in I don't know how many goddamn years, and I'm not going to live forever. And Taylor Heineke and Ryan Fitzpatrick are not the answer to that. And before you look at me sideways, and before you shake your head, and before you call me all those type of names, before you do all that, Realize that for the most part, if it's not you, there's a whole lot of people who feel the same damn way. There's a whole lot of people that feel that way in Chicago. There's a whole lot of people that feel that way in Denver. There's a whole lot of people that feel that way in cities where their football teams need a franchise quarterback as good as Deshaun Watson. And before you sit up there and you judge me, before you sit up there and you shake your head, before you sit up there and talk about me being a hypocrite, before you talk about all those things, you can talk about all those things, but before you talk about all those things, let me ask you a question. Who the fuck did you vote for? Because if you voted for the piece of shit that was in the White House for four years, you ain't got too much to stand on. For these folks who want to uh, sit there and talk about horrible, horrible, and shake their finger at Deshaun Watson if he did something like this, fuck you. Because you are the same motherfuckers who voted for somebody to lead this country, to be the head of this country, who is a lot, who did a lot worse than Deshaun Watson, who's much more of a monster, who's much more of a piece of shit, who's much more of a lowlife. Even if Deshaun Watson would do these things, which would uh, put him down low, way low, way low on the respect level, if he did do these things, uh, don't don't sit there, especially if you're an evangelical. Don't sit there, especially if you're a white woman, don't sit there with your bullshit about what a horrible human being I am and how horrible it is that people will want this guy to play football on their team. Don't sit there and say that shit if you voted for the motherfucker in this election that was in the last, that was the president for the last four years. You ain't got shit. You ain't got shit to say concerning that matter. 
Go ask fucking Stormy Daniels. Right? Right? So don't go with, don't, don't, don't bring me that bullshit. Again, I don't know. I don't know. Have no idea. It'll be interesting to see how, where this goes. If they're truly talking about, I'll keep quiet if you give me six figures or if you give me a nice fat check or a settlement. If, if, if Busby, if their lawyers are coming with some shit like that, no, 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 I'm not, uh, then your, your, your story, your story about sexual assault is greatly diminished is greatly damaged if it's like yeah you know what um the sean watson i mean the things and i didn't put in the things that he that he was alleged to do if you want if you want to uh, read that disgusting stuff then you know there's places where you can go to get the details i'm not going into the details because they're lewd and they're disrespectful and they're disgusting and they're disturbing and all those things but if you're saying that Deshaun Watson did all these things. And then in the next moment, you say, well, you know, if you pay me six figures, I can, uh, you know, say we're good. No, no. And look, and I, and I understand in the criminal justice system, the journey that women had to go through in terms of sexual assault. And I understand you're going up against Deshaun Watson and the public figure that he is. And to sit there and to have to relive and retell what you go through. I can understand rape victims, sexual assault victims, the way that you've been treated, the way the criminal justice has treated you, the way that males have treated you in this country. I can understand you being apprehensive. I can understand you being squeamish. I can understand you not wanting to do it. But man, you got to believe in the direction that we're going right now if he did these things. And again, I don't know if he did. But yeah, it's easy to say I was sexually assaulted, but I'll keep my mouth shut if you pay me 500 grand after taxes. But I think it's also, who am I to say? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And if you didn't do it, and if you are doing it for money, then Deshaun Watson should be the one where it's like, no, no, we're, we're, I'm, not, I'm not paying you money. You know, I, I, I'm, we're, we're gonna we're gonna go through, it and I'm gonna I'm gonna show that that you're the phony. I'm gonna show that you're an absolute an absolute phony in this situation because those things also need to be taken care of in terms of look, man. You know, it's like I tell black folks when they start screaming racism, 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 man. You better be fucking careful with that shit because if you just throw out racism every time you feel wronged or something like that, and it's not true, and it's not like you know. Hey, man, that sets us back a lot. So if you're being discriminated against, if you feel that, uh, you know, there's some racism in there, yeah, man, I'm I'm behind you 300%. I'm with you, this, that, and the other. But if it's not, man, shut the fuck up and whatever, you know. No, no. Because that accusation is way too important for you to be flippant or sort of kind of or use it as a tool for personal gain type of shit. That accusation is far too strong, far too damaging, far too uh, powerful. And it's the same thing. If you're accusing, if you're accusing somebody of sexual assault, you better damn be sure that you were sexually assaulted. And if Deshaun Watson came in, I don't know. Maybe Deshaun Watson said, "Yeah, I came in 
with a towel around me, but I never took it off, or I don't know, I was wearing some underwear that might have been a little bit um, awkward or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what degrees of sexual assault. I, I don't know how a woman would feel aggrieved in terms of, you know, if Deshaun Watson. I mean, as, once again, Desha, if Deshaun Watson came in for the massage and he was wearing nothing but a towel and had uh, some really short short uh, underneath that towel, or he had underwear or something like that, and that's all he had. There's some women out there that would feel very uncomfortable and feel disrespected or something like that. Maybe it was, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. But I think it's just something that we need to uh, take a look at. And it's something that I'm going to be speaking on as this goes along. But uh, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is an important time. This is an important time. One thing we do, one thing we do know is that if you've got money and you've got celebrity and you're a male, Oh yeah, man! You can make this thing go away. Ask Kobe Bryant. You you can you know there there there's a blueprint. Even if you did do this, there's a blueprint to where you can come out of this unscathed. It might take a few years and a two and a few championships to do it. But even if Deshaun Watson did do it, I'm not saying that he did. But on the if he did do this, there's ways where he can a stay out of jail. And B, regain his love and reputation to where in the year 2026, 27, this is just a blip on the radar. If this happened, not saying that it was, not saying that it did, if it happens, talk to, you know, I, I, so there's a blueprint for this. So for females, look, I know it's hard. I don't know because I'm not a female, but, you know, history has shown that having this stick having these uh, accusations stick or having these crimes stick for real, Deshaun Watson is not doing jail time. 26, 25-year-old Deshaun Watson is not going to jail for this. I don't know what normal person, what the uh, punishment would be in a court of law if he was, if someone was convicted of these crimes. I don't know if he gets jail time. I don't know exactly what happens. I don't know how long he would get prison time. But um, he... he you you can assure yourself that even if Deshaun Watson did do these things and if he's found guilty of these things, he ain't going to prison. Deshaun's at the point now where he's got enough money where he can buy himself some justice, even with him being black. Might not be the justice kind of justice if he was rich and white as a male, but he's got enough money and enough stature to um, lessen the lessen the degree of punishment if he is found guilty of these things, but I don't know. And I'm going to uh, see, but as I mentioned before, with this situation, please, for the women, for women gaining their equality, for women still trying to make moves to get respect that they deserved, let's slam the brakes and stop the accusations, the baseless accusations on who's right and who's wrong until we get some more information on this.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast. In about five minutes after I'm finished with this podcast, I am not editing or I'm not uh, pulling in my shit and doing all that kind of stuff. I am headed off to bed because, man, I am exhausted. Tomorrow is going to be... It's going to be interesting to say the least, but we uh, soldier on. Hey man, want to speak about what's happening. And I mentioned before about the biggest sporting event in the year, 2021, the potential for the biggest sporting event in 2021, not just once, but twice. Well, I'm going to uh, do a little schooling here. The potential for the first fight of the century, shall we say, and the biggest fight in British boxing history The first step has been made. Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, the other day signed a two-fight deal to unify the uh, heavyweight titles. Uh, The first step was taken for this fight to become a reality when they signed the contract. Now, before everybody starts jumping up and down and hallelujah and all right and high-fiving and pounding and all that kind of stuff, there's still some more hurdles to be jumped before it becomes official. And we can truly become excited about this fight. We're, we're, we're one step closer. All right. We're, we're one step closer. We got farther than the mega fight that everybody thought it was going to be. Um, Deontay Wilder versus Anthony Joshua. Two undefeated heavyweight champions, blah, blah, blah. And then Anthony Ruiz comes in and ruins everything. And then Deontay Wilder decides to fight Tyson Fury to withdraw. And so, the mega fight that could have been between Wilder and Joshua is now nothing. So at least with Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua, this has gotten a lot farther than than, um, Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua. So there's still more hurdles to be jumped before the fight becomes official and we can truly become excited about the fight, but we're getting closer. Like, for instance, exactly... Where is the fight going to be happening? When is the fight going to be happening? Now, Eddie Hearn, the promoter for Anthony Joshua, he's talking about June or July has been the has been consistently touted as the target date. But there's been some rumors that the fight could be pushed back. This pushed back as countries pay more attention and more money, and the situation with the COVID restrictions are being lifted. This is all about trying to maximize the earning potential between. Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua and the handlers and the promoters and everything like that. So, you know, when we're speaking about June or July in terms of the first fight that could be done, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But exactly what is the situation going to be with our society as far as COVID is concerned? How many uh, places can we actually go to where we can maximize the amount of people that can go ahead and watch this fight? Now, since they signed the contract for a two-fight deal, The plan is for those guys to fight in June or July and then near the end of the year. If they fight near the end of the year, then we're talking about a possibility of, will the fight be held in England and at Wembley Arena or somewhere in the stadium where they can put up to 90,000 people in there or at least 50, 60, 70,000 people. You know, the farther along this goes in terms of... um, putting these fights together in terms of a date is concerned, well, we'll have a better understanding of world where the world is concerning with COVID. So there's reports, Chris Mannix, I heard there were reports that the first fight could take place in September at the earliest. 
When asked about if he's confident that the fight's going to happen this summer, Eddie Hearn told White and Jordan on TalkSport, he said, yeah, that's 100%, that's a uh, 100% focus. We know it's difficult. We know it's a difficult world at the moment. We know there's travel restrictions. We know global economics are crumbling, but ultimately that's the date of the fight. People are talking about some people might prefer this fight to take place in September, October, November. Well, some people aren't us. We want Fury against AJ two fights this year. This is what we've signed up uh, to. This is what we're talking to. All the relevant sites and approaches that we've had is a two-fight agreement, one in June and July, one in November, December. Now, there's also a deadline of 30 days that's been set to find a venue and time for the fight to be staged this summer. Of course, deadlines are made to be broken, but promoter Eddie Hearn, Hearn has confirmed that seven countries have offered to stage Joshua versus Fury. That's Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Qatar, China, Dubai, America and the UK, they've already been named as possible destinations for the fight. But again, the site fee is going to cost around $100 million. That's why you know, United Arabs, who got about $40 million for Anthony Joshua's fight against Ruiz, that is another one of the destinations that could be a possibility. But uh, the contract calls for a 50-50 split in the, for the first fight, 60-40 for the rematch, with the winner taking the higher share. As I mentioned before, first fight, logically, taking place somewhere in the Middle East. Second fight, taking some taking place somewhere in London, England. So, hey man, this is uh this is important, and there's nothing like a heavyweight fight. Nothing like a heavyweight fight. I mean, we can speak about look. There's been the Manny Pacquiao. There's been the uh, Floyd Mayweather Juniors out there who have been big pay per view draws. And before that, you had the Oscar De La Hoyas who were big pay per view draws and such. But, and you have, you know, the Mexican fighters out there who always put on a great show when they go in there and fight. And I think for the sport of boxing, to see those guys, to see those little guys in the welterweight and the lightweight divisions, when they go out there and fight, it's always good for the sport of boxing to be putting that stuff on free or cable television for those guys to uh, perform their their craft, perform their skill, their competition. Good for the sport to see those guys fight because they're always entertaining they're always, uh, you know, going to bring in the, um, the, the the boxing fan to watch. And the real boxing fans know how exciting the uh, Mexican and the Hispanic uh, boxers are. But what brings in the casual fan, what brings in the casual sports fan, what brings in the sports fan in general, always is going to be a heavyweight fight. And when you have two fighters around the same age, two fighters who are at the same level in terms of their ability to fight, at the current time, like Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, this is going to be a situation where this is going to be huge. And the fact that they signed a contract for not just one, but two fights, which then inevitably will set up the trilogy if need be, it's uh, it's going to be awesome. So we could be taking a look in the next 12 to 15 months, Joshua and Fury fighting three times. And the winner of those fights whether it be two fights or three fights, it's going to go down in the history at the bat, go down the history of the baddest man on the planet during this era of the fight game in terms of the heavyweight division. He's going to be part of that lineage. 
in terms of heavyweight champion. When we're speaking about the start of it with John L. Sullivan moving to Jim Jeffrey, then Jack Johnson, then Jack Dempsey, then Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, Vladimir Klitschko. Then the winner of this trilogy, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, is going to have his name attached to those type of names. Now, look, I understand when I was reading off those names as far as heavyweight champions are concerned. Yes, look, I can't go ahead and name all the heavyweight champions. I can't go ahead and name Floyd Floyd uh, Patterson. I can't go off and name Ingemar Johansson. I can't go off and name Primo Carnera. I can't go off and name George Foreman. I can't go off and name uh, uh, Riddick Bowe. I can't name all of those names. But just the memorable fighters in the fight game in heavyweight boxing history. Those are the names. Those are the guys. The Sullivans. The Johnsons. The Dempseys. The Lewis. The Marcianos. The Listons. The Ali's. There's really no Ali's. The Ali. The Holmes. Tyson. Holyfield. Lewis. Klitschko. Those are the guys right there in terms of the greatest of them all as far as heavyweights are concerned. Rank them wherever you want to, but make sure you include those names when you're talking about it. So when you're talking about great heavyweight rivals in boxing history, because at the very least, if everything continues like it's supposed to be continuing with the talks between Joshua and Fury, and let's go with a glass half empty scenario where, excuse me, a glass half full scenario here where, yes, those guys are going to be fighting in the summer and then have the rematch sometime near the end of the year. Well, you're going to be then having a discussion in terms of Fury and Joshua right up there in terms of the greatest rivals in heavyweight boxing history, whether it's Gene Tunney versus Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling, Rocky Marciano versus Jersey Joe Walcott, Floyd Patterson versus Ingemar Johansson, Sonny Liston versus Muhammad Ali, of course, the greatest of them all, Joe Frazier versus uh, Muhammad Ali, Michael Spinks and Larry Holmes, Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowe, Lennox Lewis versus Holyfield, Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield in terms of the attention, in terms of the importance, in terms of the fanfare that is going to receive. You can see these two fights, especially when it's, when you're talking about across the pond over in England, you're speaking about, yeah, Lennox, excuse me, yeah, um, Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua, yeah, right up there. Now, depending upon what happens in those fights, I mean, if it goes out in the first fight, Fury beats him up in six rounds and then duplicates it in the second fight, there's no need for a third fight, and where did this go down in great heavyweight history in terms of rivals are concerned? Could you even consider this a rival? And then, where do you put Tyson Fury if he goes ahead and does this? And the same can be said if it's Anthony Joshua. If it's Anthony Joshua knocks out Tyson Fury in eight rounds and then does it again or wins a, a pretty unanimous decision in the second fight, then where do you put Anthony Joshua when everything is all said and done? Does he become the greatest fighter in British boxing heavyweight history? Does he surplant someone like Lennox Lewis in terms of him being the greatest heavyweight boxer of British uh, who, who, was, uh, who was from uh, Britain? So there we go. The last undisputed heavyweight champion was Lewis in 2000. So this is going to be the first world heavyweight title fight with all four belts on the line. And the fandom, we, we don't know, me being here in the 
racist, ignorant, selfish, divided states of America, I don't know exactly what the fever is in terms of the fandom for both Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua over in England. I know Fury has gained fans since his comeback and he's got some crossover appeal with his campaigning for mental health, um, his boxing style, his gregarious personality. I know Joshua in some corners is perceived as a corporate image, uh, you know, someone who was, you know, put together as far as in the lab is concerned by corporate and nothing more than a stooge for those guys. But, you know, this is a guy who did put 90,000 people in the in the seats when he fought Vladimir Klitschko. So, look, the rise of Tyson Fury has been fantastic. You know, beat Vladimir Klitschko in 2015. Then after having some issues with depression and substance abuse, was off for about two and a half years, came back in 2018, fought WBC champ Deontay Wilder to a 12-round draw that December, got hit with a punch where you thought his head would have been detached from his from his body. Not only did he get up at the end of the uh, 12th round, but also uh, put an ass whooping on Deontay Wilder near the end of that fight for a draw. Then in the rematch, stopped Wilder in seven rounds, a complete and total domination. I don't give a damn what excuses Wilder was trying to make in February of 2020. Secured his place, secured his spot as the heavyweight champion and the top of the food chain in terms of uh, heavyweights are concerned. But Anthony Joshua mentioned before, Tyson Fury's 32, Anthony Joshua now 31. He won the IBF title in Fury's absence in 2016, then added the IBO and WBA belts with his own win over Klitschko in an exciting fight in 2017, and then the WBO crown from Joseph Parker in 2018. And after losing to Andy Ruiz, his first time in the U.S. fighting at Madison Square Garden, where he knocked down Ruiz, but Ruiz got up, knocked him down, and then beat him up and stopped him in the seventh round. Um, he came back, won a workmanlike decision, cautious, smart, professional boxing decision over Ruiz, then returned to uh, a more attractive way of fighting by stopping challenger Krubat, Krubat, uh, Krubat uh, Puliev in the ninth round at the uh, Wembley Arena in London. So, here we go, man. This fight is going to be interesting. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait for it to come on. I think Fury is a better fighter. And I think if those guys fought ten times, that Fury would win seven of them. I think he's more of a natural fighter. I mean, this guy was a bar, was, was born to fight. He come from a boxing background. He come from a boxing family. This is not something to where... Because he was big and because, uh, you know, he was strong, that he had to go into something. So at the age of 20-something, so at the age of 19, he took up boxing and said, if I'm going to have these gifts in terms of physical attributes are concerned, I might as well put them to something. And if I can't do basketball and if I can't do football, I might as well try to do this. See Deontay Wilder in terms of the reason why he became a boxer. I think boxing is in Tyson Fury's blood. I think that he was born to be a fighter. I think this is something that who he is in terms of, uh, you know, something that is his chosen occupation. So I think from that standpoint, um, I think that he's just a better boxer. I think that he's more versatile. He's bigger. He's taller. Yeah, I think he has a better chin. He's been in better competition. He's more resilient when facing adversity. We, we saw the one time that Anthony Joshua faced some adversity. He folded in his fight against Andy Ruiz. What are we going to be seeing now? Now, you know, Tyson Fury has had some mediocre performances. 
in his uh, comeback after he uh, after he decided that he was going to come back after that long layoff. But what type of uh, fighter are we going to be seeing with um, Anthony Joshua? All of that time will tell. Man, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I am flipping exhausted. It is now past 2 a.m. in the morning, and uh, I am done. I'll be talking about Fury and Joshua a little bit later on on my podcast as things matriculate to uh, the conclusion in terms of sight, in terms of money, in terms of time of when those guys are going to be fighting. But right now, I am going to collapse into my boudoir and try to get some uh, sleep so I can be somewhat functional tomorrow or at least later on this morning. So I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I want to thank you very much for supporting this podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, review, iTunes, Google, any place where you listen to uh, podcasts, I'm there. So in conclusion, love, peace, unity, harmony. Let's see what we can do to move this world in the direct place, in the right place with uh, togetherness, with understanding, with unity, with harmonious actions, and with love for all malice toward none. There we go. Music. Won't leave me alone Listen